Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. How's your summer been in general? I know uh, obviously you've been working on, on the record and now you're out on this tour with Alanis. Well, I had him... A great weekend with my girlfriends in the tropics. And that was all going really well. And I was like dabbling at some songs thinking I was going to do the live album and the B-side record. I wasn't going to tour. I was just going to put out a little something for Christmas of 99. You know, just not much work. Well, all of a sudden, um, things started to shift. And I ended up in England playing all these songs to Mark and Marcel. And they looked at me and said, you can't really put these with the B-sides because they live in a in a shape by themselves. And um, they said, you're going to be making a random record. You can't really do that. Theoretically, it won't work. So I had no idea I was doing a double record. The band was booked. They were coming to do three songs. And I said, you're going to do 13. <laughs> Only 11 made the new record. But... Um, they were busy. We should explain to people the new album is going to be a double album. It's called To Venus and Back. It's going to be in stores on September 21st. One half of it live material and, and one half all new material if they divide albums into yeah. sides these they're days. They're definitely two discs and one is and they're both discs of the planet Venus and one is Venus live still orbiting and the other is Venus orbiting and that's the studio record. Okay, so how do you feel about the live material? Because anybody who's been to a Tori Amos show knows that the Tori experience is the live experience. And is this material that is with the band for the most part? or, or does It's some like of it... the shows last time, so it's pretty much how a show would run with this thing called Secret Time in the Middle. We just call it that because it's shorter to do that than when Tori plays by herself. So um, we compiled out of 120 shows. We had like the NBA playoffs going on. So everything had a ranking system. One being the worst, four being the best. I think that's a Dutch thing, Marcel. I have no idea why four is the best and one is the worst, but in our records, one was not good. Mm -hmm. So by the end of it, we had about um, 15 songs that had made the semifinals. And then we had to cut them down. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on this episode, we're wrapping up Tori's fifth album, To Venus and Back. Hey, 
Can you believe we're at the wrap-up already? Can you believe we're wrapping things up? I know. I'm ready to wrap it up using the foil backdrop from the Five and a Half Weeks tour. You better wrap it up before you strap it up. That's, <laughs> that's all I'm what, saying. That's what they always say, and usually I end up crapping it up. David. <laughs> Let's just call a spade a spade, okay? What were some other ones? You got to wrap it up before you strap it up. You got to throw other ones. I'd never even heard that one. Is that a saying? Yeah, it was like promoting condom use in the 90s. Oh, uh, okay. You got to lick it before you stick it? No, that wasn't one. <laughs> you should lick it before you stick it, but yeah. that wasn't the saying. <laughs> How have you been, David? I've been pretty good. Are you sad? For any particular reason? Is there something I should be sad about? I'm paranoid, apparently, but I'm not feeling particularly <laughs> sad. <laughs> no, I'm thinking general sadness, but also sad that we're wrapping up to Venus and Matt. Yeah, I guess I always get a little sad, but there's so much to look forward to. I'm actually feeling pretty good about it. How about you? Okay, that's true. No, I'm glad that you reframed it because I was going to get a little sad because I really did. I really love this season. I really did. I had so much fun. I was thinking back earlier today about like where we were when we did the Juarez episode. Which time? <laughs> I know, the second time. The first one was Lost Forever. But <laughs> I, at that time that we released the Juarez episode, I thought that was my favorite episode. And I felt like it was so relevant and so meaningful. Mm. Like, I was really proud of that episode. Then we got to Theta Hamill, and Theta Hamill was my favorite interview of all time. And then we just kept, I felt like we just kept doing, like, one-upping ourselves this season. I was so proud of this season. I feel like this season is my life's work. Maybe we finally settle into our groove like the touring band. When they came to do To Venus and Back. <laughs> yeah, maybe. They were just like vibing. They were collaborating in a new way. Yeah. That's us. Yeah. Or as Jack Foster says when he's trying to troll me, oh, you finally found your stride. It's like, I'm, we've had our stride. Thanks, Jack. Is that when he's trying to troll? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He trolls by compliment, which is actually genius because when you tell people, I can't believe he said we found our stride, then they're like, um, you're, are you okay? Or by telling me old Tori Amos news. Like, he'll tell me something, you know, when I was in Europe, he'll message me and say, do you know Tori Amos is on tour right now? This is like as if it were breaking news. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Jack Foster's our artist, and he's currently working on our new logo for Strange Little Girls, Ooh, which is coming soon. very exciting. Yeah, I know. I'm excited to wrap up this season and move on to Strange Little Girls, and we couldn't do it without our Patreon supporters. Should we say hello to them now? Hello. Hello. Hi. Can I interest you in space? Yes. Give me some space. <laughs> so we're a little behind on our patron shoutouts because it took us a minute to put out this episode, but we have great news in that our intention, since it's the first episode of the year... Our intention is to release at least one new episode every week, either on Patreon or here on the main feed. So you'll hear your name much sooner. So thank you for your patience. And let's get to it, David. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's one thing I know, it's New Year's resolutions always set one up for success. <laughs> yes. New Year's resolutions always stick. Okay. First and foremost, we'd like to say hello and welcome back to Michael Morrison Smith. Love you. Love you so much. Mr. St. John, just bring your more son. Oh, hello, and welcome back to Michael Guy, who jumped up to our highest level. Michael, that earned you a guest hosting spot on a Strange Little Girls episode of your choosing, but let us know as soon as you can. Ooh, that Michael Guy, is that too easy? I don't know. Swears he will host. Thanks to Ryan Crawford, Nick Moulton, and Beth Robinson, who all jumped up to higher levels. We three kings, those three kings, are coming again in at a higher level, bearing gifts. Mirror. I have exciting news from one of our patrons, Christian Malam, David. She said that she loved Adita, a dent in Tori's ass. She was a fellow dumb turn-of-the-century teen. That's what she said, her words. Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> wow, what a title to hold. <laughs> Us fellow dumb teens. We. Turn of the century teens. Mm-hmm. I imagine you in your umpier waist, dressed a la bebe. Yes. We're recovering Christians and dumb teens of the century. <laughs> Turn of the century teens. Should we have like some sort of award show? Like and actually yeah. deem someone the dumbest teen of the century or the dumb teen of the century? I don't know. I think we know who that goes to. <laughs> yeah. There's no need. None. <laughs> Hello to new patron KW. Hey K, heard you had a double U and tongue. Hello to new patron Kathy. I'll be cathing out. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's very good. Cathing out. Yeah, good one, David. Hello to new patron Stacy Todd. Todd, sometimes <laughs> just do come through. Oh, good one. You should get to do it though, because that's so funny. Good one, David. Hello to new patron Amanda Siraki. Amanda, da 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 da. Siraki in the cold. You're on it today. That's good. Uh, thanks, David. Good one, David. Hello to new patron Michelle Davis. She dives for Michelle's with the nautical nuns and Davis. Hello to new patron Hey Kumjin. And if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, I apologize. I'll say it again. Please let me know. I did some research. I looked up how to pronounce it on the internet, and I think it's Hey Kumjin. Hey Jupiter. Hey Jupiter. Oh, that's good. Hello to new patron Emily Kunashk. Or welcome back, I believe, to Emily Kunashk. Sing it. Oh, why do I always have to sing? This is so bad. Hold on to nothing as fast as Kunash. Sorry about that. Hello to one of my new sisters from the last tour. Hello to Kenny Dulock. I'm actually going on a retreat this weekend with Kenny Dulock. A what? tour retreat. You are? Yeah. To do what? Just to, you know, play Tory games, drink Tory-themed cocktails, talk Tory. This feels like infidelity. Well, I'm not just going with Kenny Dulock. I'm going with Saker and Valerie and Shay. Oh, great. An infidelity polycule? <laughs> exactly. A torgy. Well, if I was Ephraim Schooner, I'd say thanks for the invite. Oh my God, I would say that, <laughs> but you're not. Uh-huh. And you don't live here. <laughs> would you fly back here right after you left from Christmas? Yes. I'd just be like, I forgot something. All right. Well, I'm sorry then. Hello to Kenny Dulock. You say you might do, lock, maybe in a carving <laughs> in a cathedral. <laughs> Hello to new patron Scott Webb. We've said it before, but I think it's always worth remembering Scarlet's Web. Scotlet's Web. Scotlet's Web. Hello to new patron, New Dreams Limited, LTD. So many old dreams on the shelf. But it's time for new dreams. It's a new year. New dreams, LTD. Welcome back to Jamie Soretti. Oh my God. We can't stop talking about crying with Jamie Soretti. Every time we see her name, we have to just mention crying or start crying. She'll be on Never Shut Up with Rose coming soon. Does she say Serengeti in like Apollo's Rock or something? She says Saren Soretti. Saren Soretti. Yeah, that's what I've always heard. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Buck McGee. Never going back. Never going Buck. Never going Never Buck. Going buck. We are never going Buck. L -l -l Lucky McGee. I think we've done that before, but I think it's good. We did Lucky McGee. Welcome back, Buck. Hello to Candace M. Candace M. Weaving on. Weaving on. Hello to new patron Angela. 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 Oh, yeah. I never thought of Angie's full name as being Angela. After you break up, it gets more formal. She's like, call me Angela. Hello to new patron Russell Moore. Mmm, give me more. Russell Moore. Oh, you got a good one. Give me more. Give me. Hello to new patron Brian Duty. Quickest girl in the Brian pan. Quickest girl in the Brian pan. Anytime there's a Marianne reference. Hello to new patron Chris Mushinsky. Are they still Chrising in the river now? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Mush that evil from you. Earth mother. Hello to Jeff Tate, new patron Jeff Tate, I think returning. All the girls tater. Oh. 
I don't tate you. I don't tate you. Remember that thing I said earlier that started with, I tate you? I don't tate you. I don't tate you. <laughs> Revision in the text. Hello to new patron, Pasha Roberts. Pasha Light Sneeze. Oh, perfect. I love it. Hello to new patron, Brasur. Copper to steel to Brasur. Hello, and thank you to new patron, Veronica Harbin, who jumped in at a really high level. Hi, Veronica. Harbin made only wants to be unmade. Oh, Harbin made. That's mm. good. I thought you were going to go with St. Veronica. Oh, that's good, too. Well, the Harbin Maid shows creativity. Shows a willingness to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Hello to new patron, Gabriel Pasquale. Are you Gabriel? Are you blue? Are you gay? Are you Briel? <laughs> are you gay? Are you Briel? Hello to new patron, Andrea Miley, who jumped in at a high level as well. Hi, Andrea. I'd walk 500 Miley's. That's the proclaimers. I know. For Tori, it's, we walked 300 Miley's. Yeah. Hello to new patron Aaron Lily. And Lily White matricide? No. Patron side. <laughs> Lily White, patron side. Because she's a patron. You get it? Ugh. I can't explain all the jokes to you in this three hour episode, David. Friend Japani? Lily. Oh, yeah, Lily. And last but certainly not least, hello and welcome to Sonia Jelani. Jelani, grab your bass guitar. Jelani, bring your bass guitar. Mm hmm. It's Cloud Riders, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In case you didn't get it, it was Cloud Riders. But we couldn't do it without all our Patreons, and we're going to get through this list um, probably in the next episode or the next episode. So if you didn't hear your name today, please be patient. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this without you, really, truly. Thank you. We also couldn't do this without the wonderful Shay Stymack, who puts together all our show notes. She put the show notes together this whole season, as she did with the last season and the last season. She's a staple on our show. So as we always will and always do on the wrap-ups, we thought, let's invite Shay into the studio. So we flew her down to Los Angeles into the Drive All Night studios. We left David in New York, though. (laughs) Sorry, David. It's okay. We flew Shay into the studios, and she's here with us today. Hi, Shay. Hi, guys. I'm so happy to be back on here with you. Welcome back. Thanks. How lovely to have you here. I assure everyone she's sitting right next to me. (laughs) You look fabulous. Oh, thank you so much. As do you both. I actually have my shorts on and that's it. I can see that. You don't need to describe your outfit to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're right. You're here. (laughs) Shay, can I ask you a very real question? Please. Are you in it for the long haul? Can I expect you to be here when we're doing the Ocean to Ocean wrap up? Because if you're not going to be here, I need to start preparing my soul now. I will for sure be here. I've actually already almost finished with the notes for the entire Strange Little Girls album. What? (laughs) Looking forward to the future. Yeah. I love being part of this show. So, yes, I'm here for the long haul. Shay's like, I've completed all the notes for Ocean to Ocean, so you can bet I'll be here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Shay, I think you did a bang-up job this season. Your notes were thorough. And what I like that you do now, Shay, and and please continue to do it, is that you, like, write little notes in the margin. You know, you're like, this improv is fire, or, like, whatever you'll say. I really appreciate, like, having your perspective. So Shay's official color is purple because she writes her notes in purple. So they'll stick out. Yeah. No, I have loved doing this season. It's one of my favorite albums. And you guys are just so fun to listen to. I mean, I listen to each episode, you know, at least twice, but sometimes many, many times over just because I know that, you know, I'll be distracted and miss something. But honestly, you guys are just great and funny and smart and your memories are beyond measure. So like I said, I'm just so excited and happy to be part of it with you guys. So yeah, it was a great season. Thank you, Shay. How was your Ocean Ocean tour? 
Oh, it was great. I went to five shows, all the California shows with my sister. Yay! The shows were amazing. And of course, San Diego, she pulled out Sister Named Desire, which is one of my all-time favorite songs. I was bawling during the entire thing. I rarely cry at Tori shows. And yeah, I just, I couldn't believe it was happening. So it was a great five shows. <laughs> That's amazing. The Ocean Ocean Tour was filled with amazing moments. It really was. I mean, the 2023 leg was, it felt like an entirely different tour um, from the year before. She just really has still got it, that lady. You know, she never fails to uh, outdo herself live. I agree. My question is, who will she record with next, Ash or Matt? I believe that, you know, Ash is probably here to stay, would be my guess. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I love Matt. And I it actually took me a bit to get used to like, who's this guy, Ash, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he is just watching him. He is just as much into the music as if he was there for the creation process with Tori. He's so in tune and part of it. And his ideas that, you know, he comes up with and adds to the songs are just so spot on and perfect. So yeah, yeah I, I mean, and not to say, you know, that doesn't lessen Matt's contributions. Of course, I would love to have him back. But yeah, Ash is a good one. There should just be two drummers, then they should drum in time. <laughs> yeah. I told Che, we said we would be done with Venus sooner if she hadn't interrupted us with a two-year tour so therefore we spent two years on venus and there was a two-year tour so we really got no time like we did this in no time warp speed well for those who don't know shay stymac compiles everything into its appropriate document when she can't figure out where it should go because it's too general she puts it in the wrap-up document and what we're reading today are quotes that didn't make it into any episode and then a little bit later we're going to hear from the people we'll read all the comments most of the comments that we received this year or this season the tavina sabak season so we're going to read it all you're going to hear from shay you'll hear from david you'll hear a little from tori and most of all you're going to hear from yourself it's a new year. It's time to move forward in the catalog. So let's wrap it up, yeah? Excellent. No. Venus orbiting. So the first interview Shay has uncovered is from the Kevin and Bean show on K-Rock, May 13th, 1999. I'll be Kevin. It says this is both of them together unless Kate Bush is participating in this interview. We'll speak in sync, David, can we? Okay. Can we accomplish it? Sure. Are we going to be Kevin and Bean together? Yes. All right. You mentioned, mentioned MP3. MP3. They are, they are a co-sponsor co -sponsor of the tour. tour. Yeah. This, this is, is a... This is going to be messy. <laughs> yeah. This, this is chaotic. Okay, we got to get it together. All right. Every good performance needs an audience member, and that's where I'll be. Okay. You mentioned MP3. They're a co-sponsor of the tour. Yeah. This is one of those things that if people do not pay close attention to technology, they've heard MP3 bandied about, but they're not exactly sure what it is. Can you explain in just a few seconds what it is and what the attraction is for you to be hooked up with them? Well, I'm kind of computer illiterate, so I'll do my best. MP3 is the technology whereby you can take stuff, music, and download it. And I think the record industry has gotten really nervous about the whole thing. Because of the quality. I think it's such good quality that the record industry is afraid that someday they might be replaced by you allowing us to just download your music. Well, you know, it's one thing to download it, and it's another thing to steal it. I mean... I believe in streaming and the term where you can listen to something no different than on a radio. Or if I want to try on a dress and I go, God, this dress is really cute. It makes my hips look smaller. Can I just walk out of here with it? That's not what you do. You go, I like this dress. I tried it on. I want to buy the dress. And that's what streaming is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas I think the industry is worried that all the music is just going to get downloaded. But you see, we can't be afraid of technology. The new record that I'm doing has a lot of computer on it, computer and piano, sort of married together. And I believe that, you know, you have to be involved in the technology if you want to be a part of regulating it. And there are a lot of people that are involved in the technological side today that don't have a lot of integrity. And there are people that do. And we can't pretend that it's not happening. It's really a part of our life. Yes, young children of the future, there was a time when we got our technology news from Tori Amos. Right. (laughs) She was training us on the future of music. I find that interview, I find her to be really progressive. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, she wasn't wrong. She was always at the forefront when it came to the emerging internet back then. So, yeah. What changed, do you suppose? I don't know. Maybe she just realized that her fandom was contacting and getting together online. Obviously not as intensely as we are today, but she just was, you know, understanding that it was going to be part of the norm, which we had no idea how far it would come. But here we are. Do you remember, David, when she started gluing the Discman closed with the CD inside? Oh, yeah. My memory of that is around Scarlet's Walk. Or Strange Little Girls. One of the early aughts. Do you find her to be this progressive with technology today? You know, she's just going with the flow. All the live stream interviews she does now and during COVID with the fun in and outs of her Zoom book tour. I was just thinking about when Noah kept dropping off the call. Yeah, that was so awkward. (laughs) I know. To be Noah in that situation, have the wherewithal to like, know you dropped off the call and come right back in and immediately pick it up where you left off. Like, that's a professional. Mm. He's great. I enjoyed your performance as Tori Amos so much, Shay. Why don't you read this from the Atlantic Records promo bio, September 9th, 1999. No one event shaped this record. I just let my observations take over. I sort of became a camera orbiting around Venus's heart. You have to keep taking adventures and exposing yourself. The album's origins go back to early 1999, when Tori started culling together tracks for an Odds and Sods collection of B-sides and rarities. Instead, to her surprise, a bounty of new songs began to flow. You can't command when you get zapped. I look at the piano, I stalk her, she looks at me, takes a yawn and goes back to sleep. It's like, piss off, Tori, I'm on holiday. When she does show herself, however, she usually only shows me a glimpse, and then she demands that I become a hunter, a hunter of her frequency. It became quite exciting because we had no idea we were cutting a new record. It just grabbed me by the throat, really. We ended up working around the clock and putting it together pretty quickly. The entirety of Tabinus and Back was produced by Amos and recorded and mixed by Mark Hawley and Marcel Van Limbeek. Being my own producer, no one can make me turn on my artist. Obviously, I have a team of musicians and engineers around me that I respect. And when one of them has a suggestion, I, as a producer, will literally change my shoes and let the artist leave the room for all our sake. This is my Cindy Sherman album. Tori says, referring to the photographer-filmmaker whose self-portraits explore the myriad ways in which women have been depicted, from archetype to contemporary culture. Just as the planet is named for, to Venus and back is, says Tori, an emotional elixir with a little bit of Dionysian frenzy thrown in, which resonates with the feeling world, not the thinking world, where blood and wine become one. Oh, we love a Dionysian frenzy. Oh my gosh, we sure do. This uh, little part where she talks about herself as the producer reminds me of, I think it was the primer where you were talking about the term ant fucker and David said, To be fair, they meant A-U-N-T. <laughs> That's what they call the producer. When she gets too demanding, they're like, oh boy, here comes Ann Fucker. (laughs) 
<laughs> so funny. <laughs> Do we think she literally changed her shoes? Yes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I know that she likes to play in heels, and so I feel like they're not comfortable to stand around in if she's just not playing. Mm-hmm. So maybe she had a pair of flats or Crocs. If any song on this album were Crocs, which would it be? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I would say maybe Spring Haze. Comfortable footwear for the flight. Interesting. There's nothing comfortable about rubber shoes. I'm going to throw a wild card in there and say lust because this is about vulnerability and being seen for exactly who you are in like full fluorescent Mm. lighting and still being desired by your partner. It's like, you know what? I'm just going (laughs) to stride in wearing Crocs and see what happens. Take me as I am. (laughs) If you can't love me in my Crocs, you don't deserve me in my Manolo Blahniks. God, it's true. Exactly. This is an interview Shay found from Ur Magazine, September 18th, 1999, a very special day for us all. Shay notes that this interview gets very weird towards the end, but things can get weird on September 18th. I don't think I've ever had a September 18th not get weird. So starring as Tori Amos, once again, the incomparable Shay Stymack. Right, we're going to just drop right in here. Is that why you're afraid of the next millennium? Afraid? My ass. Those people are waiting on the apocalypse, but it already happened. The best proof of it are the bad haircuts in the 80s. I'm not kidding. The people are totally alienated from their spiritual and emotional side. That is the real apocalypse. We're all very close in front of the abyss. In my case, it's only some inches. I am that close on the edge of insanity. My only fear is that my fear is bigger than my faith, because believing in God is the key, quote unquote. As a child, you really hated God. No, I only had an argument with him. That's something else. When people talk about God, then most Western people mean the Christian God. And when you're being raised in a family that is just convinced that this God is the only true one, then it really exists to you. So to me, he exists. God is drinking a margarita up there at this moment. I'm sure of that. But I don't think of him as divine. I believe in the spiritual world. To me, that world is as real as you sitting in front of me. This is mostly because of my Cherokee grandpa, who had an enormous influence on my life. I find the divine mostly in non-Western and age-old cultures, especially from the Native Americans. This sounds very new age to me. You know what I call the new agers? Pleasure rabbits. They're just sitting there with a peyote giggling in the corner. They play with some rituals, but don't integrate it into their lives. They buy New Age as a coat that you can put back in your wardrobe when they want it. That doesn't interest me because it's not dangerous. It looks like R&B nowadays. Most R&B doesn't have power. It doesn't make your soul shake. It's only rhetoric, surrogate sugar. And then they parade around whenever they want in their dresses, jewelry, and Versace stuff. I don't give much about it. I don't care how good it sells. McDonald's sells good too. Did your marriage calm you down with the risk that your inspiration is getting less and less? Damn. (laughs) (laughs) That is the cliche. It's just how you look at marriage. You can look at it like the sitcoms on TV show it, but you can also see it like ancient mythology, a contract with another soul. Well, my idea of marriage is different from the stuff I saw on American television. Many women turn into some kind of non-person after their marriage, as if they're cut out of some housewives magazine. I see marriage as an exciting and dangerous adventure. It's like I ventured another solar system. Emotionally, I'm on a journey in space. What shall I find here? I'm now more than ever fascinated by the dark side of the human spirit. I want to lick at what is hidden. I think that's enough. You're drawing the line at licking what is hidden? Just getting good. (laughs) I know. What do you think of that interview? Pleasure rabbit, where'd you put the keys, girl? 
Yeah, really. Um, She's just so good at one-upping herself when she feels the need to mess with interviewers sometimes. And I just love that so much about her. She does do that. She has done that before. Famously, the 99 interview with Jon Stewart, which should we do a whole bonus episode on just that interview? Maybe. Oh, my God. Break it down. Talk to some psychologists. See what happened. Try to find someone on the crew. Not ass wet. I actually never understood why she veered during that interview. Me either. Me like he, yeah, he didn't seem to do anything that I would think would piss her off. There's a lot of Tori bingo in here. There's God drinking a margarita. And one of my favorite things is when she quotes or inspires herself. She's like, my only fear is that my fear is bigger than my faith. Sweet. Um, Yeah. (laughs) There's a takedown of an entire genre of music that maybe she shouldn't be commenting on. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Let's read this from Documentaire on French channel MCM, September 23rd, 1999. MCM says, does it always come from previous experience of recording that where you think you didn't have time enough or was it always the case to change things until the last minute? And Tori says, I used to be more intimidated by making that phone call when the artwork is all ready to go, the CDs have been pressed and you go call them on the phone. You have to know it's all going to be too salty anyway when you taste it. There isn't that refinement. You know, everything's going to taste like it has a little bit of semen in it. But the thing is, when you're doing it for the album, when people are going to take it home, they're taking your babies home. And you want them to fall in love with your babies or have their own experience with them. The strange thing is, you know, you have song babies and they come out, wave to you with a passport and burly boots and say, fuck off, mom, I'm going to college. And that's the hardest thing. Within two months, they're like in Tower records you know mm-hmm. you get it yeah how many meals have i sent back at a restaurant and been like you know what this tastes like it has a little bit of semen in it <laughs> <laughs> i ordered extra <laughs> oh my god speaking of semen though shay i'm curious why you didn't include this in the riot poof episode oh good call i'm not quite sure gays semen it fits <laughs> it's all general right not ass wet We have another quote that Shay uncovered. We have a few more. Shay did a really thorough job. This one's from Rolling Stone magazine, December 30th, 1999. Tori says, the music industry is not about music anymore. This is a time of entertainers. But at a certain point, you have to go back to the tradition of writers. Jackie Collins, remember how she loves her romance novels? Jackie Collins sells a lot of books. But is that in the tradition of the bards? I can throw shit on tape and I've wasted a lot of tape. But at a certain point, is there a craft or skill that's being developed? Some pop records are put together by really smart people. And the artist is just one of many players. The artist is the face of the producers. Producers are now the real artists that's not a negative that's the truth not a lot of artists are writers or players sometimes that's a good thing sometimes that's a consequence i have a different relationship with the producer she sometimes tries to fire me prediction i guess this because it was at the edge of the millennium they're asking her what her prediction her resolution and her time capsule is prediction if they keep crashing stuff into the moon trying to find water and then the moon gets pissed off and the tides change and all women start pmsing together you guys are going to fucking regret that resolution Less anger, more smile, time capsule, three things, the white album, a pair of my peach pointed leather Manolos, size seven, and a hallucinogen, probably ayahuasca, freeze dried, because you don't want the dysentery. It's an 18 hour trip. I would like to adapt that prediction into a feature length film. Oh, that's actually great. That's a good idea. It's a pretty straightforward premise. Yeah, you got stuff crashing into the moon, women PMSing together. I'd watch it. Starring Nadine Anderson. 
Mm. Oof. Shay, let's read this from Us Magazine. From a fashion standpoint, they ask her, who has inspired you the most? And she says... Anne Boleyn, who was Queen Elizabeth's... (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Who was Queen Elizabeth I's mother. She was French and had her head cut off. She was a true individual. And yet there was a classicness to her look. Nothing too desperate. She wasn't afraid to stir up the imagination, which is always good. I also liked Barbara Stanwyck's look early in her career. She was a great dresser because she was a more intelligent kind of turn on. What clothes are you most comfortable in? I love being in a skirt and boots. It goes back to the librarian principal look. I like the idea of carrying books around in a skirt. How does your look on stage differ from your look at home? I'm into knits when I'm home. To play on stage, I have to be put into a shield, some kind of contained thing. If I performed in a knit sweater, my playing would be sloppy. I always play in heels. It gives me more support. What's the coolest outfit you've worn on stage? The band bought me this full leopard suit with ears and a tail. I wore it one night on stage. My crew needed cheering up, so I went out in it for the encore. Nothing I wore that night was very flashy, so the paradox of it worked. What's the dorkiest outfit you've ever worn on stage? Dorky is very subjective. When I used to play piano bars, like the Marriott's Airport Lobby Bar in Los Angeles, there were dress requirements. I was not allowed to wear leather or plastic, which was difficult in the 80s. So to find dresses to play in for happy hour was a tall order. I would change in the back of my Capri. I drove my Capri because I couldn't afford a Mustang. I would change in the back of my car after work so my friends couldn't see that I had worn this God knows what floral print. (laughs) Were you guys at the show? I believe it was either San Jose or Sacramento when she came out in that uh, leopard suit. Yes. In 98? Yes. Yeah, I was there too. You were? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That was a great show. Yeah, it was really great. I just remember looking around in that audience being like, what is happening? I think it was like a basketball stadium or something. And Tori Amos is playing a show here and all these people are like out of nowhere all of a sudden. It's like, okay. (laughs) And I remember she also had a Kenny doll from South Park on the piano with her when she came out in that scene. Yes. Yeah. That was typical though, no? The Kenny doll? Not necessarily on the piano, but I know that she would hide Kenny on the stage somewhere because she said something about it and I spent a portion of that show looking for the Kenny doll. At one point, there was something wrong with the Busendorfer and they had to use a Yamaha or something, which at that point there wasn't a relationship between Yamaha and Busendorfer. And they used the South Park dolls and like hung them over the side to cover up the fact that it was a different yeah. piano. <laughs> yeah, I recall that Covering as well. the brand name, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> from El Dominical, I guess it's a magazine in Spain, from January 16, 2000, they say, From the Choir Girl Hotel shows a disjointed and estranged Tori Amos. It portrays an existential crisis that, by the tenor of what is heard in To Venus and Back, the double record with which the singer said farewell to 1999 is still there. Venus Orbiting, the first of the two CDs, includes 11 new songs, pretty realistic and depressive, <laughs> while the second, Still Orbiting, was recorded during the plug tour and took place in 1998 and is a journey of some of the titles in her intense discography. One of her last declarations defines which is her actual mood. She says, I dedicate all my efforts to being free. I practice piano to forget the keyboard. I always wanted to be a ballerina to forget the ground. I live in the country to forget the public, the producers, and the journalists. (laughs) This write-up is so judgy. I know. Tavitas and Back is actually stellar. I don't find it to be depressing whatsoever. I don't think we're doing any of these quotes justice because we didn't even speak about her clothes from the last quote. And let's talk about something that really made sense to me. The last quote about the clothes was from 2000, so 23 years ago. 
But when she says, to play on stage, I have to be put into a shield, some kind of a contained thing. If I performed in a knit sweater, my playing would be sloppy. If you look at her outfits now, and since probably about like 11, 2011, she's had basically the same silhouette, right? With these fabrics and these things. I wonder if she feels like all of that fabric contains her and shields her. And it never occurred to me that her playing might be reflected in the different outfits she wears. Because she wore cargo pants in 98 and she played fine. <laughs> I was going to say, she never really had her show looks until the proper Choir Girl tour for Choir Girl. Mm-hmm. The aprons. So maybe that's when she discovered, oh, like it's not like just putting on the Mrs. Paris hat, you know, and, and becoming the piano teacher. But, you know, I put on these costumes and I become Tori the performer rather than just a woman. Yeah. That probably has a lot to do with it. Is like when you step into the outfit of a performer, then you kind of deliver differently, maybe. Right. But, you know, aside from that, if there's anything we can all agree on, it's that in terms of fashion, Anne Boleyn's style was delightfully lacking in desperation. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Truly. From Launch Online Magazine, April 12th, 2000. Venus is very much about sound effects. She's of the ether. So sonically and lyrically, the sound of her is very... It's the extreme from the live record. The live record has no overdubs to it. <laughs> I'm sorry. The guys tarted her up a lot. <laughs> you know what? We have got... We've exhausted this topic, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not exhausted. I'm ready for another round. The guys tarted her up a lot. But it's about having been there, and the principles are different at work for a live record that is of the third dimension than a work that's coming from Venus, which is really from the ether, trying to materialize here on Earth in this space. The new material is really about the ether. The extreme of little earthquakes is Venus, because she's trying to become matter as opposed to just an idea, a spirit. You know, the little whispers that happen in your mind, they're trying to take form, ideas taking form. It's a whole other thing. It's very difficult to achieve that, I think, if you're ether trying to become matter. Ether twist. Mmm. She did it again. <laughs> what do you think of this is the extreme of little earthquakes? I do see it. Tell me why or how. Because the only other title in her catalog that references a planet and it's Earth. I don't know. It feels to me little earthquakes, like the Earth has split open, and now you've revealed the heart of the woman inside, and you're simply just on another planet. Like, Earth has opened up, and inside is like the little smaller Venus, like one of those dolls, like the Russian nesting dolls. Or it could be that Little Earthquakes was, I mean, it wasn't an acoustic album by any means, but, you know, it was just kind of more grassroots and DIY, I guess, in her mind, and then Venus is like this extravagant production with all the and all that either way it works right interesting i'm sitting with the line she says because she's trying to become matter as opposed to just an idea a spirit that to her seems to be kind of the crux of how this is the opposite extreme of little earthquakes and i'm wondering if that goes back to what she said about no one event inspiring this album that it was these abstract threads or observations that she was trying to bring into song form whereas little earthquakes is like here it is it's my diary do you think that could be kind of part of what she's talking about you mean all of her you know, past work, all roads were leading to Venus in a way? Is that what you mean? Maybe, but it seems like she's really like comparing the two and that there was more of a, I don't know if challenge is the right word, but that it was a different process to bring these ethereal abstract threads of observation, like the camera circling the woman's heart into song form as opposed to Little Earthquakes, which was more like pages of the diary. I don't know if that's making any sense, but that's like some of what I'm getting from this. That Little Earthquakes was more straightforward in that way. I think too that we've never heard from the Little Earthquakes era or anything that we've read that those 
earthquake songs came out as anything but those earthquake songs. Like when she sat down to write Precious Things, that's what came out. It's what happened. Same with China. She wrote China, Take to the Sky, all of those tracks. But in the Venus era, there's a few quotes where she talks about there were limbs of all the girls. This girl's toe went to that girl's face or whatever, (laughs) you know. So it seems like it was a much different process. Yes, I mean, it definitely was, for sure. But now we need one of us to play Matt Chamberlain. And David, I simply do not have the rhythm. So could you read this interview with Matt Chamberlain from 1999? I'm a human loop. Here we go. Tori called me up and said, before you get on the plane, just one thing. We're cutting 13 tracks, not three. And we have the same amount of time to do it in. Click. While Venus was just going to be a live record, she's also been writing on the road, and we'd all obviously been playing tons together. So she thought it would be fun to go into the studio and capture whatever it is we'd been doing together. So the idea was just to record a few songs, and it turned out to be a little bit more than just a few of her songs. She's just one of those artists. I don't understand where it all comes from, but she's a nonstop songwriter. Honestly, she's prolific. If you've taken a page out of Tori's book, sometimes when you call me, you're like, we're not just doing one episode, we're doing all the strange little girls. And I'm like, what? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I love when we get to hear from people other than Tori that are in her world and also, you know, the creators of the music and things, even though this is kind of repeating things that we'd heard before. I just love when we get these bits and pieces from the band and people that work closely with her. Yes. I love having people on the show who've worked with her in the past on certain tracks and stuff, but I feel like trying to get Matt, John, and now Ash, I feel like that's one step too close. For them, it's one step too close, you know? It's like probably like really in the inner circle. It's like getting Mark and Tosh and John Witherspoon. I remember actually the first time you and I met in person, Ephraim, I came to your apartment (gasps) and you and I were talking about your hopes for the show for the future. This was maybe 2018 or 19, or maybe it was 2017. Anyways, you were talking about your hopes and you said, I would love to have Tori on an episode, maybe, you know, and not tell anyone and just surprise, you know, this is the concertina episode and with me today is Tori Amos, you know? (laughs) So um, I'm still waiting for that. We've already finished concertina, so maybe it has to be something for maybe Scarlett. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be better if it's general joy. You know, please, ma'am, explain this song to me. You know, something I have no, yeah. It sounds like Tori originally had maybe three new songs when she contacted the band and was like, we're going to do a B-Sides thing and then maybe three new songs. So what do you think were the first three new songs that ended up on this album? Oh, God. Do you think it might have been a few of the songs that she had brewing for a while, like Snow Cherries? Or do you think it was something that we've never even heard mention of? I took it as she wanted to tart up some of the B-sides that were going to re-record maybe like a Mary or a Sweet Dreams or something like that. How they did that for Tales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how I took it. Like, we're not just doing three songs. Maybe she wanted to redo Sugar. Like, maybe she knew she was going to redo Sugar. And that's why the soundcheck version ends up on the live disc like that. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Do you think Sugar would have brought it up to 13 if they were going to totally, like, re-record Sugar? Because even if we counted Zero Point, that's still only 12 tracks from the Venus era, right? Mm. We're cutting 13, so we have a mystery Lucky 13. Oh, you're right. That would be my guess, Sugar. And maybe Purple People, because having been prior B-sides, maybe they could be on an album, help fulfill the contract, 11 tracks, plus 13 tracks on the live album equals 24 tracks. So maybe there was like a 24 track requirement. And then she's like, oh, we don't need 13 on the originals because she didn't want to give her songs away. That would be amazing to have the studio version of, you know, our present time sugar. 
Shay found this wonderful article about shoes from Shoes Magazine from spring of 2000. This is about the Steve Madden collaboration. And it says, Tori Amos talks about Soul Aid shoes. And this interview was conducted by Dan Williford. What's this? Fave musician Tori Amos immortalized in the fashion world? Yup, it's true. Designer Steve Madden has created an original shoe bearing her name. Seems that Madden is a longtime supporter of Rain, an organization that Amos founded. Neatly timed to coincide with the release of her fifth album to Venus and Back, the shoe profits will go to Rain. Madden says that because his customers are usually young women who are at the highest risk of being victims of sexual assault, he felt it was only natural to team up with Amos to develop his only celebrity shoe. So what kind of shoe would carry the name of the controversial, passionate singer-songwriter who has disrupted the calm world of pop music since her debut in the early 90s? It's a high, strappy wedge platform sandal that hoists any choir girl a full five inches closer to the planet Venus. It fits right in with Madden's collection of funky, stylish shoes, each with its own name and, some would argue, its own personality. And so far, it's been a success. With Tory fans, Madden fans, and Rain supporters all vying for a piece of Tory's soul. <laughs> this article is perfect. This writer's amazing. With Tory fans, Madden fans, and Rain supporters all vying for a piece of Tory's soul, it isn't surprising that autographed versions have been auctioned off for thousands of dollars. Though you can't run right out and buy the shoe just anywhere, Madden and Amos promise they're working on plans to team up again in the future in support of Rain. We caught up with a musician and shoe fanatic Tori Amos in New York just before she headed home to England. She wanted to talk about Steve Madden, Prada Velvets, and what happens when fashion and music collide. And then the interview continues on with Shoes asking Tori a bunch of questions. We'll link to it in our show notes, songsoftoriamus.com. You can read the whole thing there. It's rather long. What did you think about the Steve Madden shoes, David? Do you own a pair? Do you still have your pair? I had a pair of Steve Madden shoes back in the day. But for friend of the show and friend of us, Val Patterson, had the actual Tori Steve Madden. I'm sure she still does somewhere. But yeah, she bought a pair of them. She bought a pair? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's pretty cool. I think they came in just black. And I think there was a red pair as well. Am I mistaken? Maybe they were just black. But yeah, they were that chunky, strappy, very early 2000s look. Yeah. <laughs> I was never lucky enough to get my hands on a pair. Oh my god. Tell Val to auction them on eBay and see how much they go for. Yeah, what do you think they go for now? Shay's the collector. Shay would know. What's a fair price? I would think that maybe a fair price would be like, oh, like 600-ish if they've never been worn. Did you say 600-ish? I have no idea. <laughs> I've never seen them on uh, for <laughs> auction or for sale. <laughs> I'm not finding any listings on eBay. No, but I am finally seeing the shoe. Based on the rarity alone, I think that would probably be what it would go for. The pair of shoes that, that I would like to get my hands on, um, I think it was Jillian Doty that had a shoe from the a sort of fairy tale video, you know, the no. kind of vintage looking kitten heel. Yeah, she explained it in a Facebook post on the collector's group. I forget how she came to have this shoe, but. Our Jillian Doty has the sort of fairy tale shoe? Yes. I believe it was like a radio station contest or something that she won and she got. They weren't the one shoe that Tori wears in the video, but um, I guess they had a couple other, you know, shoes made for emergencies or whatever, you know. In case the heel actually broke. It does have the heel that's broken, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Wow. Well, just to wrap up this article. The Steve Madden shoe was black, synthetic, and animal-friendly. They auctioned three pairs of the Tory shoes off on auctions.yahoo.com. We were told at that point that her shoe size is seven or seven and a half. And then that article continues with the ways to donate and volunteer for rain. So, excellent. 
Did she ever work with Steve Madden again or did that not end up happening? I don't remember any additional partnership. I don't know either. Well, why don't we take a little break and we're going to come back and start reading all of our listener mail. We love listener mail. How do we feel about that? Sounds good. I mean, it's all about the people, right? It's for the people, by the people. And I need coffee. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's time for the third annual Drive All Night Holiday Sparktacular. A silent night with you. But we have one problem. David's lost his Christmas spirit. Everyone will just have to deal with the fact that I've got the midwinter blosses. The mid- the what? Midwinter blosses. Blas. Blas. Blah. Blazes? Blasses. Midwinter blazes? It works better off paper. Due to an absolutely unforeseen, unpredictable, and unscripted head wound, we need the ghosts of Tori past, present, and future to help him come out of his Christmas funk. Who are you? I am Jacob Marley. <laughs> We've met earlier. All right. I met the guy with you. I, oh, this is Tori Amos. <laughs> the ghost. <laughs> that dude. The ghost of Tori Pat. Oh, man. Head over to patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos for this exclusive episode and find out if the ghosts of Tori past, present, and future can help David regain his Christmas tide. Once again, that's patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos to become a supporter today. Bah humbug a martini. I wish you'd stop saying that. That's a curse phrase in our land. A, a typical day in the studio because it isn't all flashy glamour for you when you're recording. It's kind of real, isn't it? I mean, you work with your husband. He's one of the engineers. It's his studio, right? Mm-hmm. Is it rustic? No, it's very... Um, Techno gleam, right? It's a 200-year-old it's <laughs> barn on the outside, and then inside it's like a spaceship. It's really very geared out. A lot of audio pornography going on Ooh. with the uh, guys. They like knobs everywhere and boxes in different colors. And there are hundreds of pieces of gear. And for this record, I think we were working a lot on what those knobs did and sound effects as an instrument. Um, but really marrying, because I'm a piano player, the whole synth thing, we brought in some Selenas and waveforms from the programmer, and I was trying to find a place where the acoustic world would orbit the sound effect world. And we got much more into, I think, the production of it. Now I'm really into that side. It fascinates me. I just kind of see the songs as, um, some are closer to the others, but I have them all in a room sometimes, especially when I'm touring. And I get certain impressions that some like to be next to each other live, and some feel like, one of them feels like, in particular, that her um, whole thunder gets stolen if she's next to another one. So you're sitting there trying to go, oh my God, how can songs have like riders in their contract? <laughs> I won't go next there. And then you really, they make sense though. This is not really, this is not really happening. My attention really is always on the songs and less on the effect that the songs have, whether on people or the media or 
I keep my focus on um, the architecture of them and their relationship with each other. And I feel like if I do that, then I can keep my little boat sailing, no matter what kind of weather hits us. You talk about the architecture, what, you know, what the street looks like, which house is which, next to which house. Sonic geometry, yeah. Sonic geometry. Do you labor over sequencing? Do you dream about it? Do you spend weeks retooling it? Or right. do you have a sense of it right from the beginning? I torture everybody with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it, in the end, I spend a lot of time in my little truck tooling around and certain things sonically cannot live next to each other or they just are not set up. It's almost like when you're telling a joke, you know, you have to have the setup so that then there's a real payoff. And I knew that I wanted to start the new record with Father, I Killed My Monkey, opposed to Father Who Art in Heaven. And that started to determine where we could go. That was from Speakeasy Canada on January 5th, 2000, right after the turn of the century. And I just wanted to say a quick thank you to Michael Schuler and Lisa Ridlon for providing this audio of this interview. Um, before they made it available, it wasn't out there at all. So thank you to them for sharing it. You know how much is lost out there? Yes, and it drives it home even more because you mention it so often. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> Shay said, shut up. No, not at all. It's just, especially the early days, you know, it would just be so amazing to have everything. Yeah. And you know what? I do believe Lisa Ridlon is the person to find everything. The best among us, Lisa Ridlon will be the one to uncover everything. She's found bootlegs from 94 that were just digitized like last year. She has her way. Yes, she's an amazing hunter when it comes to all that and the sharing, all the work she puts into sharing and putting it in correct formats. Sometimes she'll do multiple formats for different people. I know, she's amazing. Thank you, Lisa. The point is, Lisa Ridlon is great. And I challenge you, Lisa Ridlon, if you're listening, to find us a bootleg of Tori Amos performing at the Marriott in LA in the 80s. (laughs) Holy grail. We're reading all of the stuff that people sent to us. We received a lot of emails that weren't necessarily about our episodes, and we're including some here. And this is from EDR Lumen, who wrote us to say, I want to scream an enormous thank you for the high-quality work you guys put into this podcast. I've learned things about T or her songs that I didn't know. And also, my relationship with the songs have started to change after listening to you provide such deep insights into Tori's artistry. I'm blown away. I'm rediscovering these songs in BTW. I'm only on episode three. Sadie, silent all these years but i was hooked since the first episode that is lovely that's why we do it my heart is warmed yay i think that our relationships with the song changes too so every time i have to share this because i was having a really sad day when i got this message and it turned my whole day around so i'm gonna read it here for you now emily h on instagram said quick story of appreciation for you while at lunch i ran into a fan from new orleans we bonded over the podcast we both had similar tory experiences found her sort of young in the 90s and our friends didn't get her also totally unaware of the online scene past the dent we both love the podcast so much and how it helps draw us into the greater tory community thank you so much for all that you do thank you emily h that's Mm. so nice of you to say 
normally I don't like being discussed when I'm not around, but in this instance, I'll allow it. <laughs> That's really cool. I wonder how they knew that each other were fans of the podcast. Maybe they were like acquaintances or maybe one of them was wearing like a Tory shirt and they got to talking. Yeah, I'm curious if it was an actual friend of hers or a stranger that they started talking about the podcast. I want to know everything. Emily, give us a part two. <laughs> What were you wearing? <laughs> what were you eating? They noticed that they were wearing Team Noun and Team Verb shirts. And that they're, in fact, <laughs> bitter enemies. We'll never get a part two. That's where the story ends. I recently uncovered a Team Verb shirt that I had in my closet because I was thinning out my Tory shirts. I decided I'm getting rid of all my Tory Miss t-shirts that don't fit Why? me. No, oh. Because the ones that don't fit me are taking a broom in my closet. So I'm like, well, I have all these shirts that are like very small. Like I used to buy just any shirt and then even if it was in the smallest size, it just doesn't fit. Anyway, so I had this Team Verb shirt. I couldn't believe it. It had fallen to the back of my closet. That's the <laughs> only reason it survived. <laughs> so I sent it to David. You should have like a quilt made of your t-shirts or something rather than getting rid of them. Oh, that's a good idea. I was thinking about doing that with a lot of my shirts as well. I also want to read this comment because some of you may know Macy Rodman right up there with Tori Amos. And I recently had the pleasure of appearing on her podcast, Nympho Wars, which if you're not listening to Nympho Wars, then immediately at the end of this episode, stop what you're doing after our episode and listen to Nympho Wars. But anyway, a lovely person named Gavin Batker heard my chat with Macy and wrote us an email. I hope you're both well. Gavin says, I would like to start this message by thanking you deeply and sincerely for ushering me into my now engrossing Tory fandom, having poured over little earthquakes in high school like any other self-respecting homosexual. I fell off of her for a decade or so until I heard Ephraim's little guest spot with Macy on Nymphowars. I'm sorry, it wasn't little. It was over an hour. It was huge. And now Drive All Night has ushered me into a world that I feel I always belonged to. Speaking of, I'm going to see Tory for the first time in Indianapolis next month. I was wondering if either of you or any of your tour compatriots plan to be there. I would love to get to know members of the community and could maybe use a little guidance regarding meet and greet procedures. I'm so sorry that I didn't respond to this until today. I was not in Indianapolis, but I could have connected you with people, but I got behind on my email. Anyway, finally, you may have a stack lineup for this episode already, and I know David will have plenty to say, but if you're looking for additional mouthpieces for the Father Lucifer episode, I would be honored to join. What do you think, David? Um, yeah, we always need a mouthpiece. All right. Well, Gavin, you're in. Gavin says, keep up the good work and thank you for all that you do. Yay. Thanks, Gavin. I love it. Instead of Father who art in heaven, it's Father I killed my monkey. So our Bliss episode, David, that feels like so long ago. I know. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. We learned so much about horsepower, though. We sure did. We were a bliss of another kind back then. Please. But as promised on our concertina episode later, we mentioned that we would share this incredible bit of bliss from a Belgian TV show called Canvas in 1999. So roll it, Oliver. Did we introduce Oliver? You have a muse? Hmm. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> Feel free to talk about it. Um, huh. I don't know if she's one or many. I see myself, and I think a lot of writers do, as a container, as a translator. And these creatures just sort of come in, like invasion of the body snatchers, you know? <laughs>
Williams wrote to us after the Bliss episode and offered his interpretation of the song. You can follow him at Ginger E. Williams on Twitter for the full interpretation, but here's an excerpt. Listening to the Bliss episode got me thinking about the song from a completely different angle, and this really deep thought occurred to me, and I'd love to hear what you think. Tori has literally released her monkey, i.e. her imagination, to taste the sweet of spring, or to delight in new beginnings or the beauty of nature revitalizing itself after winter. This reading doesn't line up with the concept of killing the monkey, though. How does letting it out to taste the sweet of spring end in it being killed? If this song is a critique of the western idea of God, this may be a biblical reference. Bear with me here, as this may need some setting up. James, or James the Just, is considered by many scholars as a likely author of the epistle in the New Testament that bears his name. James was the son of Joseph and Mary and was the half-brother of Jesus. In this epistle, James, doth a spring send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no spring both yield salt water and fresh. So, tasting the sweetest spring would refer to drinking the sweet water that flows from the spring, i.e. the tongue, or in some translations, the mouth. Mouths that criticize and subjugate women, and people of color, and the gender diverse, and the differently abled, who also bear the image of God or offered up to a version of God that condones that subjugation. And so, even the sweet water from the spring is a deadly poison as a result of this hypocrisy. Okay. No, Eric has a lot of really deep thoughts on these songs, and we'll link to them in our show notes, songswithtramus.com, but I really in particular like that she didn't specifically attempt to kill the monkey. Like, the monkey just died. Like, mm. she let it out, and then something happened, you know? It wasn't her, like, strangling the monkey. Mm-hmm. It was more of an act of neglect. She left the door open. <laughs> no, she, like, let it out to, like, run free. You know, mm. it's an act of kindness, kind of. And I like the link back to the biblical references because I've long suspected that Tori, even in the quote that we read earlier, where she said that she believes in Jesus, of course, like you just would if you grew up in that household. Even on the Ocean Ocean tour, did you both notice that she was, like, doing a lot of Jesus improvs during Take to the Sky? Mm. Mm, yeah. like oh christian woman yeah lest we forget why don't you read this one shay a dm'd us on twitter with a link to a power mower okay let's look at this link uh it's a (laughs) four hp briggs mower okay oh my god shay (laughs) does such a good tim (laughs) allen And A says about this link or about this lawnmower, lawnmowers often have power drives, self-propelled. My take on the line. So it's a lawnmower thoughts? Hell yeah. Sometimes you got to mow your lawn. You got to trim your bush, lest Mm -hmm. we forget. Mm -hmm. From your favorite film, The Lawnmower Woman. (laughs) The Lawnmower Woman. Thank you, A, for keeping us grounded, literally. Ryan Crawford wrote after Bliss to say, You'd asked if listeners had ideas why, during the Posse tour, Bliss was sung almost equally between Pip and Tori. Thinking of your comments about how Father is a reference to a god and to T's dad, I wonder if Pip sang it as a shake my fist at heaven kind of thing, whereas Tori sang it about her pops. That sounds possible. I like it. Ryan Crawford, you win. However, someone also sent us, and I'm realizing I didn't put this in the document, because maybe it was in a text. I don't know, but some maybe it was in a text, and maybe it was... 
Artie Pavlov. I'm I'm access, somebody somebody sent us like oh there's a blog where she talks about as Pip her relationship with her father or the the father and that was why the bliss performance from Pip made sense. But I don't have that in the document. I'm sorry. I tried to be very thorough. You're forgiven. I think that bliss was really sarcasm at the human race. Maybe we're just a bliss of another kind. Maybe that the way we all deal with each other. Maybe if people are looking on to us from a different star system and they could see and talk to us what they see about us, I'd be fascinated to know how they see us. Because sometimes I don't understand why it's so difficult to communicate with people even speaking the same language. Sometimes it's so much easier to talk to people who don't speak English. Because, I don't know, maybe the words get in the way. Divide and conquer a person with themselves. That's control. Matthew from Australia wrote us to say, In the Juarez episode, you talked about the sound of shoegaze music playing in the cars and that also Juarez is one of Tori's shoegaziest songs. I don't think I'd ever heard of shoegaze before. And then you mentioned it in another episode. I can't remember which one. So I googled shoegaze and I can't seem to find a solid explanation for the sound. But then Spotify must have eaten my cookies because it suggested a shoegaze playlist that was made for me. So many songs and bands in there that is right on point with my taste of music but I never knew how to describe what it is that I like. Well, the playlist included Detura and Spies as well. I'm wondering if there are any other songs of Tori's that you would classify as shoegaze. Huh. So shoegaze to me is like really heavy guitar, really wa- soundscape washes, and then the vocals, the like key part of shoegaze is that the vocals have to be like way deep down in the mix. They can't be on top. They're like part of the fabric, part of the texture of the song. And then uh, oftentimes you can't understand them. Uh, a lot of times like, you'll just hear screaming screaming in the background what I think of a shoegaze. But anyway. Is that like Mumblecore? Mumblecore's film, though. Right, yeah. By your explanation, I would say that maybe if Six Was Nine would be, is that a shoegaze Yeah, okay. that's good. Oh, good one. Got my own world to live through. I ain't gonna come there Friend of the show and big sweetie Joe Olson said about Juarez, I can't believe I never realized how much Juarez sounds like God till today. The Scarlet arrangement of Juarez particularly sounds like she could easily pair them together musically and then thematically. No Angel Came, God Sometimes You Just Don't Come Through, and both song number twos. Can't believe I'm just hearing these as Sonic Sisters. Oh. And they both opened the Ocean to Ocean tour. Oh, yeah. They are Sonic Sisters. And mm-hmm. I would say God, the beginning is like the shoegaziest song on that album. <laughs> I love hearing other people's perspectives. Belinda sent a message letting us know that the Paris 2003 that you played Juarez from is a fake bootleg. <gasps> Someone requested it on piano in 2017, but the episode is great. Thanks, Belinda. So one of those instances, I guess it was mislabeled at some point, right? It was a deep fake. It was a deep fake. Oh, oh my gosh, I hate this. I hate AI. 
Have you heard Madonna perform Giant's Rolling Pin on YouTube? I refuse to listen to any of those AI generated. I listened to a couple of the Lana Del Rey ones singing Tori songs, and I was just too creeped out. <laughs> it was good, though. You were creeped out because they were good, huh? Yeah, they're too real. I don't like it. No, I love these deep dives. In fact, I want to play that right here. I want to play Giant's Rolling Pin by Madonna. Roll it, Oliver. After just one slice, you can uncover any lie. That's why the NSA and now the FBI want to be the ones who control Beth and Marley's one of my favorite people in the entire world, Jess Butler, wrote us after Juarez, and I'd like to read her thoughts in their entirety. Are you ready? Yep. I'm ready. Jess Butler, by the way, fantastic human, great friend. I'm just catching up on the podcast, she says. Loving the new content. Hearing Juarez made me miss tour. I remember that first night in London, knowing what it was almost immediately, and the goosebumps, and always being excited to hear it, unlike a couple of other setlist staples like Russia and Spies, which, after a couple shows, started to feel like they were taking a valuable space. And dare I say it, Cornflake Girl, which I've honestly never liked, though that is a shame, because if I had have liked it, I would have gotten into Tori in 1994, as I had it on a Best Hits cassette. Anyway, regarding the Rasta Man, I don't know if this is a reach, but as I was listening, I was reminded of the Rasta and Thelma and Louise. After they lock the policeman in his car boot and they get pulled over driving through the desert, Monument Valley, and a little while later, there's a vignette where a Rasta cycles up smoking a spliff and stops, breathes some smoke through one of the bullet holes in the boot, into the boot, then carries on. It's a moment of light relief, but also kind of random. Like, why is he there? What does he represent? Etc. He's an unexpected character in the context, and he has a sort of impartiality. He just observes, doesn't get involved, goes along his way. Given the importance of Thelma and Louise to Me and a Gun, and the link between those two songs thematically, and the fact that Thelma and Louise takes place primarily in the desert, it makes me wonder whether that is part of the character inspiration in Juarez. Also having just done some internet poking, he was never in the original screenplay, and was added because Ridley Scott happened to pass the guy when he was out for a bike ride, so he actually doesn't represent anything and that he wasn't meant to be there, which chimes with the Juarez character who has that similar feeling of not necessarily meaning anything, but simply happening to be there, happening to see things, being unfair by them maybe too much of a leap but it's an interesting parallel what do we think oh no that is not too much of a leap jess butler i love this it makes me want to do as I was, you were reading i want to do like that finger snapping thing people do that looks terrible on me that i would never actually do but i'm like this is <laughs> it that's totally why this character is in this song i love this that's incredible that is the best explanation i've ever heard yeah I read this last night when I was kind of going through this and I was like, it all makes sense. Of course, that's it. So yeah, same. I love that because I remember Eve and I, you talking like, we're, what is this Rasta man doing in the middle of the desert? Like this character yeah. does not belong in this song. And it's been so long since I've seen Thelma and Louise. And I love how she described it so beautifully. Like that character wasn't even in the script. Doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense in uh, the context of the movie. But oh, we got it now. Dang. Sold. 100% sold. Court Lauderdale? What is this? Control. 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 <laughs> Or Lauderdale. <laughs> it's Control-Alt-Delete. Okay, that does make more sense. Control-Alt-Delete on Instagram said, Great episode, as always. Listening to the conversation reconnections to Mag, me and a gun, I wonder if the Rasta man wasn't some manifestation embodiment of Jamaica. Ooh, like Barbados, the lush tropics opposite of the desert. And thus something that might be threatening, deserving of the threat of the gun to the head. Just a thought. 
Love it. Yeah. Love it. We open this wrap up up because we want to hear everybody's ideas. We have our own thoughts, which are wildly off the mark sometimes. And so I just like to hear from everybody. So thanks, Court Lauderdale. Stephen Green sent us an email regarding Juarez sheet music. Stephen said, hey, guys, I created this several months ago with the flat music notation software. It is exactly as printed in the PDF included. The left-hand rhythm is kind of very unusual or syncopated in such a way that it can be difficult to detect a pattern. It eventually gets easier to follow in the coda section with some funky accidental notes, but intentionals in its writing and composition. I hope you enjoy. I love you guys. Great work. Keep it up. Thank you, Stephen. Let's take a listen. regarding Juarez and the song itself. Did you guys ever think that she sounded kind of like Madonna in the No Angel Came part of the song? Yeah, I can see that totally. Like, it, I've always thought from the first listen of Juarez, I was like, oh my gosh, she sounds just like Madonna right there. Interesting. I remember playing Black Dove in the car once with my mom and she was like, she sounds like Madonna. <laughs> I was like, what? But maybe, yeah. I remember when I played Hotel for someone, they were like, Hotel the song sounded like Madonna. Huh. She was in a very Madonna period of her life. The lyric, um, in the desert, she must be blessed. I was watching Yellow Jackets and um, listening to the episode kind of around the same time. And I just remember thinking like that line and the bloodletting that they do, uh, the blood offerings, I'm sorry, that they do in Yellow Jackets. Have either one of you seen that Spoiler show? Spoiler alert. Oh, shoot. <laughs> That's okay. Keep going. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. It's, of course, not like an original idea by the writers of Yellow Jackets, but it kind of made me think that this lyric could be going after the idea of blood offerings and the desert she mm. must be blessed. That could be the darkness that is surrounding the horrible trafficking and awful things that happen in Juarez. What songs did they use in Yellow Jackets? They used two. Yeah, they used Bells for Her and Cornflake Girl, I believe. Yeah, it wasn't the, that episode, I don't think. But uh, anyways, I was just having thoughts and I just wanted to That's share. Great. Thank you. I have to see Yellow Jackets. It's definitely on my list, of course, because of the Tori Amos connection. That will be one that makes it to my eyes. It's really good. I'm really lucky that I live my life with a fierce calm. So our concertina episode, David, 
I really enjoyed the concertina episode and the guests that we had. And I felt I learned a lot about it. But the thing that sticks with me right now is your perception of her concertina performance in L.A. 2017. Mm-hmm. And like how that informed your interpretation. So anyway, that's what sticks with me. But regarding that, I got my fuzz all tip to play line in concertina. The gorgeous Rachel Estrella in the light on Instagram, who I love, said, I had zero idea that there was a pedal called a fuzz, a guitar pedal, you know? I don't know. If it's about Mark, I could see Tori getting nerdy on us. She does that. She loves a double meaning and a double entendre. Oh my God. Of course that's what it is. Did we talk about a fuzz pedal at all in the episode? We might have. I don't know. Speaking of fuzz, why don't you read this, Shay? Okay. Uh, Frank J at Cruel Baker said on Twitter, "Fuzz all tip to play. Starting a record player? That's what I always thought. Such dirty girls." He called us dirty girls. <laughs> oh, please, Frank. As if he minded a dirty girl. I know, Frank. This is like what my mom would say. What's wrong with you guys? I thought it was like in reference to a photograph. <laughs> <laughs> the fuzziness of the fog. Just kidding. I'm sure you're right. Yeah, it could be all things. It encapsulates and houses everything. Yes. Your turn, David. Longtime listener of the show, Bojan Bojancina, wanted to talk about concertina. Hey, I'm listening to the concertina line by line. I don't normally think that there's a right or wrong interpretation of Tori's lyrics, especially the ones in the 90s, but I think this time you were all wrong, at least with the paper cuts line. Hear me out. Paper cutting is a traditional Chinese art form that follows the thread of fragility in the second verse. Google Chinese paper cutting images to see some examples of how delicate the art can be. And you're right, the paper is very thin. She's been working on it, and she likes it. But she notices it's not perfect. Then she stands in front of a dilemma. Should she take it down to shape it into perfection, i.e. fix it, at the risk of ruining it completely, it being whatever you interpret it to be? I see it as a mask or persona she puts on when under uncomfortable social circumstances, but only because I've heard it in interview what the song is about if we assume that this is about her and mark then i got a dub on your landscape could mean that she creates sound as a musician for him the sound engineer who designs landscapes the sound implying a symbiotic relationship on another level she creates music on his territory having recently moved to england for him this shift out of her comfort zone causes soul quakes and is making her change particle by particle and her only anchor is to do what she does best, create music. Concertina to me is a perfect symbol of discomfort due to social anxiety. Your buttons are pushed all the time. You could be under a lot of pressure or stretched thin any time by the person in control. It reminds me of hyperventilation, but yet you weather all this and despite everything, you push yourself to perform well under the circumstances. In Tori's case, it is even more so because her performance normally involves creating music. Not only does she need to perform well socially, but she also needs to sound great. This is probably most prevalent when she's on tour. During the day, she gives interviews to strangers and talks to fans during meet and greets, and at night, she has to perform as a musician in front of thousands of people. Well, I like what Bojan said about paper cuts. We could be wrong. I'm mature. I'm an adult. (laughs) And I'm happy about it. Happy, I tell you. There's a lot of merit in here, especially when Bojan talks about the dub on your landscape. I mean, all of these music terms and that it could mean that she creates sound as a musician for him, with him, you know? Either way, we are all cluing in on something very personal between her and Mark here. Mm -hmm. The infamous Michael Carley pointed out the Chinese paper cuts line and wanted to know if we thought it was similar to the paper cuts line in Amber Waves. And he wanted us to discuss that. I would like to chime in here real quick and just say, no, I do not think they are similar things because the Chinese paper cuts are 
paper art form, tangible. The paper cuts in amber waves, I've always heard as like dirty boys with their dirty magazines and, you know, under their covers are busy doing things down below. So they get paper cuts because they're not paying attention, you know? Paper cuts on their penises? No, on their fingers because they're like, you know, so excited and doing their thing with these magazines. Yeah. I think you're right, Shay. Sorry, Michael Carley. I don't know what you do with your Chinese wall hangings. Yes, you do. Bag of blowing. Retail slut. Decadence. Tank top. Slut. Y'all, Glory of the 80s was my favorite episode. I loved having Theta on it. I loved our 80s game, David. Oh, yeah. Of course. I loved listening to that episode. And also, I just wanted to remind you that you guys predicted that Daisy Dead Petals was going to be played during the 2023 tour. Do you remember what? that? Did we? You were joking around. You were like, wouldn't it be crazy if she brought Daisy Dead Petals out with a band? And she did it 10 times <laughs> during that leg of the tour. So you guys are like wizardy. I always said you were a prophet, David. Or this is just like another maybe hint that Tori actually listens to the show. <laughs> and she's like, well. Oh, <laughs> go well she definitely listens during the wills and wants game that's for sure yeah oh she for sure does she's trolling Let's read some of these IG comments on the episode from Jesse Colby and Brian Corbett. Jesse said, never connected harpsichord to video games before, but Yanta's cover makes me think of arcades, and then I'm back in the 80s, imagining interstellar travel, cosmic dust, dark parties, and more. What's a dark party? I want to go to one. Do you remember that game Centipede, and you'd always get your palm pinched in the freaking ball? Mm. Anyway. Brian Corbett writes, my very favorite song from To Venus and Back and one of my favorite Tory songs of all time. I've been waiting for this one. I always feel alone in my love and adoration for this song. Same. David, read more comments. These are from Cecily and Daniel Foree. David, you could do them both, but you got to bring two different sides to these characters. Oh my gosh. Okay. The Mary and the Mary Magdalene. Who is who? Cecily's the Mary Magdalene. Okay. Listen now to the glory of the 80s episode. <laughs> I love that you think Mary Magdalene sounds like Julia Sugarbaker. I don't know. <laughs> uh, listen now to the glory of the 80s episode. I'm pretty sure I'm the reason she played the song in 2009 in Durham. I asked her to play it at the M&G, and she replied that she hadn't played that song in a while. And guess what? She played it that night. Smiley face emoji. Okay. Okay. Cecily saucy. Saucily. Saucy <laughs> Cecily. Mm, she's impossible saucible Cecily. This is Daniel Jesse Foree. And Daniel Jesse Foree wrote in to say, this episode makes me so incredibly happy. Love it. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Saucily. You know, boys, 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 love boys. Ryan Crawford wrote us after Lust to say that your episode on Lust was fantastic. Thanks again for being open to a few more thoughts about the song and its origins. It has always made me think of the myth about how Persephone became the unwilling queen of the underworld. The myth, as we all know, Persephone, daughter of Demeter, was out on the field one day picking flowers. Hades, the hottie, god of the underworld, had seen her beauty and apparently became overcome by lust. Zeus, king of the gods and Persephone's father, gave Hades permission to kidnap his own daughter. So Hades erupted from the earth in his chariot and kidnapped her slash raped her. Then he abducted her and took her down into the pits of hell. Demeter looked all over the earth for her daughter, even with the torches of the goddess, Hecate. Is that how you say it? <laughs> it's like Tecate. Hecate. <laughs> she couldn't find Persephone. In Demeter's grief, crops failed and harvests rotted. The famine caused mortals everywhere to starve. Eventually, this famine forced Zeus to answer his followers' prayers for food, so he commanded Hades to release Persephone from the underworld to appease Demeter, so that crops may grow again. 
Hades complied, but before he did, he tricked Persephone into eating some food from the underworld, pomegranate seeds, etc. She didn't know it at the time, but because Persephone ate food in this realm, she was cursed to return to the underworld each year. And so Persephone's fate was sealed without her own consent. She would live out most of her life in the world of the living with her mother, who would allow crops to grow during those happy months. Upon her return each year, spring would begin. But Persephone would also be required to return to the underworld for a few months every year, sort of like us. I know, in the middle of summer, I'm just, yeah, no power, lifeless. Yeah, 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 dark months. During those sad months, Demeter would become depressed, fields would wither, and winter would come. The ancient Greeks used this story to explain the circle of seasons. But it also represented a key dichotomy in the human psyche, a goddess of nature and spring, striving for the happiness of her innocent youth. But she's also the queen of the underworld, haunted by her past drama and forced to join her rapist in the realm of the dead people. Absolutely the most fucked up joint custody arrangement ever. Anyway, Ryan... Crawford says, my take is that Hades and Persephone have always come to my mind when listening to Lust. A woman is tumbling, tripping into the underworld and afterworld, returning to a man. Her veil, which could be considered the veil between the living and the dead, tears and rages, and she questions if he's real or a ghost lie in this land of the dead. Pomegranate seeds could be described as crystalline from the vine. Even the lyric sifting through the grain of gold reminds me of Persephone, who is often depicted with a sheaf of grain to symbolize spring and nature's fertile bounty. For me, the whole song used to depict the lingering effects of sexual trauma and the aversion to sex because of it. But after listening to your episode on lust and listening to the interview clips, it's clear to me that Tori's talking about consensual sex and matrimony, not only consensual, but something she actively wants, which is a huge healing experience for a sexual assault survivor. But maybe the song lends itself to a few possibilities. And then he has three theories, which we'll post to our show notes page. We'll put a PDF of the entire email. It's really fascinating and I think really on point. Your lusty listener, Ryan. What do you all think? I think Ryan just talked us out of a job and into a hole. Yeah, you got the job, Ryan. Tori fans are so smart and insightful. And this audience, they just add so much to think about and so much more richness to these lyrics than I've ever come up with. So it's really cool ideas in there. No, but you've come up with it too, just with different songs. And I think that Tori is the kind of artist that demands that we give that much thought. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. It's strange because I didn't know that marriage would bring trust like that. And I didn't know that trust would bring lust. And I think there's a song on the record called Lust. Um, and I, I've loved people in my life. And not trusted them and not lusted them (laughs) and it's a strange thing marriage for me it's very different than i thought it was going to be cherry wrote us to say i'm a great fan of your podcast i discovered tori quite late between native invader and ocean to ocean and your show has really helped me to catch up on all the lore thanks to the amazing interviews you do i've also learned a lot about music theory and how albums are recorded and mixed I wanted to share my thoughts on Lust. When I formed my opinion on this song, I knew nothing about who Tori was. I really loved hearing your interpretation, how it was about her and Mark and learning to trust a new partner. My interpretation is a bit different. It mainly hinges on the line and the veil tears 
and rages. To me, this sounds like she's referencing Jane Eyre. In the story, the guy she's supposed to marry keeps his wife locked in the attic. On the night before the wedding, the wife escapes and tears Jane's bridal veil. There are different interpretations of what that symbolizes in the novel. My favorite one is that the wife is an expression of Jane's own anxiety, doubt, and rage. Her dark twin, the annihilating effeminine, if you will. Oh my god, I love this toy masterclass. Because of this, and because the song sounds haunted, I've always thought of Lust as a sort of gothic novel. The picture I get when I listen to it is of two Regency-era teens who are extremely horny for each other, but they can't touch. Do I make you horny, baby? <laughs> oh boy, that timeless reference again. <laughs> I make you horny, baby? They're <laughs> shagadelic. Their only contact is through gloves while dancing. They aren't even allowed to talk without being chaperoned. And they know that if they give in to their desire, they'll have to get married and be together for the rest of their lives. So it's about repression and purity culture. On a deeper level, I think the song is also about the difficulties of building a truly equal heterosexual relationship in a patriarchal world. Does any of this make sense? I'm sorry if I'm just confusing, boring you, but if you're still reading this, I don't know if or when you'll do an episode on Zero Point. Oh, <laughs> we will. But just in case you do, I want to mention that the line, this desert called Paris, also appears in the opera La Traviata. The story is about a former prostitute who tried to lead an honorable life, but society just won't accept her. When she sings this desert called Paris, she has just been forced to leave the man she loves because his family is scared for their reputation. I think the reference makes sense, because Tori said Zero Point was about Mary Magdalene, who was allegedly also a prostitute. I hope that my English wasn't too weird or too formal, and that this email doesn't seem kind of an imposition. Thank you so much for all that you do, Cherry. Oh my gosh, we will tuck this away for the Zero Point episode for sure. Incredible. Good idea, yes. In particular, where she's talking about Jane Eyre, and she says, on the night before the wedding, the wife escapes and tears Jane's bridal veil. Mm. Very Jackie's strength. Good point. She, uh... Your favorite song, David, from this album, yeah, tells me you should begin with this comment from Chris. And please read it in its entirety and speak the abbreviations if you can. New listener Chris wrote in to say, hello, fellow youth. Yes, I am very late to the party. <laughs> no, no, no. No, 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 no. Let's try it again. You got to speak the abbreviations, like what they stand for. Oh, I thought you wanted me to try reading it like it reads on the page. No, no, no. Okay. No, I want to, I want to hear the words. I want to hear okay. the words. <laughs> hello, fellow ears with feet. Ooh. I am very late to the party. I'm currently working through Venus. In your line by line for Suede, I couldn't shake the feeling that Suede is Tori's F off message to Atlantic. It's as if she trusted them to help her perpetuate her career, and they are gaslighting her about them holding her back by blaming her for any lack of success they perceived she was experiencing. The ties to her boss bitch persona and the central source helped me make this leap. I can attribute my link to this track to Atlantic, to the interview quote you included in the episode where she mentions Atlantic. Anyway, those are my gut feelings about this, and I felt you both could appreciate these thoughts more than most. Thank you so much for very much enriching my connection to Tori's Girls. The podcast is totally poggers. Is that like preggers? Should we be concerned? Thank you so much from Chris. You're totally poggers. And that's on GodFam. Dear friend of the show and one of our favorite Tori remixers, Brandon Hellman, had this to say. Listening to the Suede episode, I always felt a little creeped out and confused by Suede too, and I definitely think it's timing. I realized this remixing it. The vocal is out of sync with the beat. It's slightly longer and shorter, I forget which, but it made it a bitched remix and made me understand why it's always been so weird to me. Your instinct is right. Actually, I want to say it's the beat that's out of sync. When I tried to line up a loop with the beat, it didn't work. 
The song's beat is cycling either inward or outward. Ether twist. I think it's evil twist. Remember we did talk about it, David. The only thing I recall from really talking about it was that it made me uncomfortable when I first heard it. It just like mm-hmm. makes me feel weird. This is the perfect explanation because, you know, I'm very tuned into timing. Yes. What makes you more uncomfortable, Suede or the solo Father Lucifer from 1999 in London? Oh, my God. Where she's playing the, like, (laughs) offbeat or whatever? Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. Uh, Both equally. That weird Father Lucifer. Roll it, Oliver. Oh. Gives me the chills. I would say that because I don't listen to that that often. Sway pops up all the time and I've learned to love it. So yeah. I love that performance. Me too. Of Father Lucifer? Yes, I think it's great. I don't know why it bothers you so much. I think it's missing something. It's missing like the top line or something. It's missing something. Freaking me out. It's freaking me out. Dear friend Julie Houlihan wrote us after the Suede episode to say the Suede episode was amazing. One of your bests ever. And to that, I say thank you, Julie. (laughs) We worked really hard on it, and I appreciate it. It just is nice to be seen sometimes. It sure is. Say more, Julie (laughs) Hulian. All right, Eric Williams also wrote us after Suede to say, Epis Fire, friends, had this really deep thought about the chorus and wanted to share. When I hear, call me evil, call me Titus on your side, anything that you want. Anybody knows you can conjure anything by the dark of the moon. I have always made the connection between the tides and the dark of the moon and menstruation. Because the menstrual cycle, sorry. Oh, he got me. Because the menstrual cycle, (laughs) sorry, David. What? (laughs) It's 28 days. It often aligns with the lunar cycle and the two are connected in ancient goddess worship. The new moon or the dark of the moon was also a good time for sympathetic magic tied to the waxing of the moon. As the moon grew in strength, so did the power of the spell. So this takes this line to a very misogynistic place where she is evil because she is a woman. Tide is on your side. Could also refer to a turning of the tides, where there's a shift in power balance. As with many things, Tori, both could be true. I love this. Brilliant. Yeah, very smart and tuned in. It sounds like to uh, how the ladies' cycles work. So. Well, Eric has a gorgeous wife, so good on you and good on us this episode. Not only have we gotten David to say menstrual cycle, but we've also gotten David to say ears with feet. And if I can get David to call Tori Amos his mother, it'll be three for three. Absolutely not. I'll get the golden three. You never know. (laughs) The Suede episode, it was literally our most commented on episode, I would say, ever. Until the very next episode, Josephine, which then topped it. But we'll get to that. The Suede episode clearly inspired a lot of people to write in because Sally Kane shared her thoughts with us as well. And she said, hello again. Just listen to your wonderful Suede episode. I never realized how much I liked the song until listening to the podcast. I have a new alternative interpretation about what, who it is about now. I'm wondering if this isn't actually about the toxic man that Beanie was dating that causes the big rift in their friendship. I believe he was sort of described as having a lot of charisma or charm, but that Tori could see that he was gas 
gaslighting Beanie and not healthy for her, and that sort of fits for me with the line, that mass so big it could swallow her whole star intact. I also was thinking the twin part and wondering if this is sort of talking about how Beanie is stuck in the middle of two people, her lover and her best friend, and they are both accusing the other of being the gaslighter or the evil one, and Beanie can't tell who to trust. And then the briefed bit would be that Tori is aware that Beanie is passing on what she has said privately. The little sister bit would be referring to Beanie, hoping that she didn't feel that way about Tori being the gaslighter, and that she could forgive her one day, and maybe an acknowledgement meant that she, when in love, probably would have trusted her lover more, too. I think very valuable. I think Me very too. possible. Me too. I love this. Your turn, David. <laughs> Our resident Bonerstein, Shay. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping David was going to say the name. <laughs> Efren's favorite username, Bonerstein, wrote us to say... How dare you? It could be pronounced Bonerstein. (laughs) Bonerstein from Denver here. So, Suede, I used to experience all the late 90s new T album releases on the roof of my garage outside of my bedroom window, headphones with a bowl of weed. Seriously, it was a ritual, and inevitably there would always be an access track for me, and Suede was it for Venus. It was one of those pivotal teenage moments. I was secretly dating a boy who was most definitely not out. We had taken a trip to Florida from Ohio on a Greyhound bus to visit my older sister. It was a pretty insane Miami experience of a trip. We ended up hitching a ride back with some friends and staying at this friend's father's house, who was a professor at Chapel Hill in North Carolina for three days extra. So the Bayou stuff struck me, and that relationship in general was a practice in insanity. My secret straight, quote, boyfriend was also a drug dealer. So sitting there on the garage roof under the moon, the anybody can conjure anything by the dark of the moon kicked my soul's ass. I have five sisters, so the outro obviously played into the whole thing. It led me to fall in love with the whole album and the work just felt intrinsically personal. Like Blood Roses did for me for Boys for Pele and like Yes Anastasia did for Pink and so on and so on. Each line of suede almost feels like a diary entry I wrote myself. It reminds me of the conversation that we had with Matthew from Australia on this episode about his twin and how deeply personal. I We have fun with these songs and we have fun with these episodes and we laugh and we goof, but these songs are like intensely personal to everyone. And it's mm-hmm. good to hear. It's good to be reminded of that. And like even to remind myself of like how intensely personal it was when I listened to it for the first time too, you know, that we all had this like yeah. deep relationship with these songs. So thank you, Boner Stein. And it is my favorite username. Could you imagine having five sisters? I couldn't, no. I mean, I'm happy with my one. You would need a bigger car to go to the Toriyama shows. I know, really. Some people think that I make absolutely no sense at all. So, so we fucked up, David. We really fucked up. What? Josephine. We've never received more listener mail. Not only people were emailing us, Instagramming us, tweeting us. I got several actual death threats in my personal mailbox. I'm humiliated by what we said about Sossible. Oh. <laughs> it haunts me what we said about Sossible. Yeah. Let me play this clip from the episode. Am I wrong? I thought the official lyrics actually were impossible Sossible. You thought the official lyrics were what? Impossible Sossible. I, I adore you, but you're wrong. Are you sure? I'm 100% sure. I'm looking with my own twin eyes okay. at the Josephine lyrics in the Tavinus and Mac booklet. And it says, impossible, impossible. It's impossible that Sossible is an official lyric. I swear to God, I remember seeing official lyrics printed somewhere where it said impossible, Sossible, which is absolutely what she sings. Do you think that's what she sings? Impossible, Sossible. Yeah, I do. Impossible. 
tell me why. She's trancing the sauce without the blame. Is that what you think that means? Kind of. Explain more how that fits in here. Like she's drinking? I think one of the possible explanations for that lyric or what it means in concertina is infidelity or flirtation. Uh-huh. And Napoleon cheated on Josephine, essentially. Or did she cheat on him? Who cheated? Napoleon cheated on her. Josephine cheated. And there's also evidence that Napoleon cheated, too. All right. Well, there's infidelity here. I feel like in her Tory way, that's her way of calling back to that sentiment in an earlier song. Not unlike the way she sings, you've got the whole nation on doll force. She's like referencing American doll posse in Yo, George. Now she's saying like sauceable, which is not really a word, but she created it. That's what I think. Interesting. We very rarely get hate mail, but we did get hate mail for what I consider hate mail for Josephine. Really? What did they say? No, not hate mail. They were just like, you were wrong. And that's hate mail. About sauceable or everything? (laughs) About sauceable. About my life's choices and sauceable. Well, I'm sorry, but you were enrolled in French courses at the time. I wasn't. You're right. You're so right. I should have caught it. I should have done quality control. My French ear should have caught it. Mm -hmm. I will take the responsibility. I will do that. Josephine is my greatest shame. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, I have to say, I think you're doing pretty well in life if Josephine is your greatest shame. Well, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> oh, let me clarify. My greatest shame, comma, second half of Venus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For my own two cents, I never knew what that meant. So I totally was like, oh, she's just repeating that second part of the word or whatever. But then, but then we were schooled, weren't we? <laughs> we sure were. We spent the next several months getting schooled. Benji by the Sea said, listening to the Josephine episode, I'm wondering if the impossible possible sauceable line is actually Tori playing with the French theme say Sibel or something along those lines. I really appreciate how gentle and gracious Benji by the Sea was. I'm wondering if as opposed to like you numb nuts what do you <laughs> Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> Jen Moore said, I think Tori's speaking French after she sings Impossible and Josephine. <laughs> Don't you think? Yes, Jen Moore. I now do think that, but I didn't have <laughs> the wherewithal at the time. I'm laughing at myself, not the comment, of course. She then goes on to say, She quotes what Tori's probably saying. How would we pronounce that, Eve? I'm not even going to try and like embarrass myself further. C'est si belle. C'est si belle. C'est but then she goes on to say because now you are making up words yeah as if tori's never made up words before come on truly i'm not above making up a word (laughs) if we can have property why can't we have sauceable yeah exactly that property is sauceable i want to live in that world that's the right timeline there was another comment from jennifer who said love your podcast Read Josephine in the moment after impossible. Is it possible that she's saying sauceable? Is it sauceable or sauceable? Sauceable. Instead of sauceable. Well, don't say it like that, Shay. Sauceable. <laughs> <laughs> this is at least what I keep hearing. Hmm. It's so like stupid Americans, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, it must be sauceable, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's obvious when you say sauceable. Right. <laughs> 
Emily Cousins, even if, if that's still her last name, I don't know anymore. Is that still her last name? I don't know. We got to find out. Emily, let us know. She took it to text message, personal private text message to say, hi, I am currently listening to Josephine and wanted to pose another possibility. Saucy bull? As in like a saucy bull? <laughs> then she said, well, first off, I should admit, I think anything makes as much sense as sauceable, but maybe Napoleon is a saucy bull. A bold, rakish, take charge man, but impossible for this saucy bull to have his love, or more accurately, to make things work with his love. And I promised her that I would bring it up in the wrap. <laughs> and here it is. This is even better than saucible as one word. I know. <laughs> this was before I went to France. Okay. And you became very worldly in French. Yeah, yeah. I was not as wise then. Martin Eden added, read the impossible saucible line. To me, it always felt like she was playing with French words. See, I can't, I can't read the French words. I'm so sorry. Maybe it's just a studio improv where she's playing with French words in that line with an abbreviated impossible slash possible. Okay. That's just a smattering of the... There are a couple episodes that we'll hit on that get us like a ton of comments. One, of course, was when we did our building noun verb debate. There was a couple of other like really... Like when we said peanut butter hand was a sexual reference. We still get comments, but this is definitely going to live in infamy, I think, forever. <laughs> I'm convinced that not only do we not know anything about, like, Tori and her work, but, like, maybe we also just don't know how the world works based on some of these discussions. <laughs> this is before I went to Europe, so I've changed. Obviously, it's Saucy Belle. Mm -hmm. Saucy Belle. Yeah, obviously. Oh, God. boy. He took one trip to France and came back smoking, wearing a beret, and was like, no, no, no. This is how it is. How long have I been gone? Oh, it feels like years. <laughs> Five days. I actually did come back smoking, and I did buy a beret. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was only $3 at the Eiffel Tower. I mean, you can't beat that. Are you going to see the Napoleon movie? I didn't even know that was happening, but yeah. I mean, I love Joaquin Phoenix, so. What a saucy bull. <laughs> <laughs> Sax Eno emailed us to say, Hi, Efren and David. Just reaching out to let you know that I'm obsessed with the Tavinus and Back season of the podcast. It's the best season so far, in my opinion. This is my favorite Tori album. Concertina is my absolute favorite Tori song. So I was really looking forward to hearing you guys break it all down. And it's been a total joy to hear the new insight that you've brought to each song. I thought that I had some sense of what the tracks mean. It turns out I had no idea. As you've mentioned, Venus is not officially released on vinyl, but I have a bootleg picture disc and an actual 12 by 12 vinyl sleeve that I got Tori to sign at her most recent concert in LA. During the Josephine episode, you referenced the possible military influence on putting the damage on, and that seems to be happening again in Josephine. I totally agree with your interpretation that the military march feels like we're on an abandoned battlefield. It's almost like Josephine is observing it all go down. The electric guitars seem to tie back to Venus, which is one of the things that I love so much about this album, is things like, what would a story about a character from 1795 sound like in space? Anyway, love this season. I really loved every episode, and I'll be sad when it's over. Much love, Sax. Thank you so much, Sax Eno. That's so, so lovely. And I recently also got the To Venus and Back vinyl, the bootleg 
picture disc vinyl. And Shay, when you were talking about the $600 Madden shoes, Steve Madden mm-hmm. shoes, I thought there's nothing in this world that I would pay that much money for, like a physical thing. But right. then I remember the Tavina Sembach vinyl. And I was like, well, that's the one thing that I wanted in my entire life to have as a collector. Like I wanted that one thing. And I would have paid any price. Luckily, I didn't have to pay 600 bucks, But anyway. I'm glad you finally got one. Thank you. And thanks, Sax, you know, yeah. for that wonderful email. Gaze, gaze, gaze. One of the nephews is going to be one. He's just got to get ready. Okay, Raya Poof, we did a panel, a gay panel, a homosexual panel. I do think that maybe we should talk a little bit more about the Poof Proof debacle because it, what you guys did mention it, but... I mean, really, it was such a Mandela effect thing, I believe, at least in my circle, in my world back then. And I didn't even realize that it was poof until like 2005 or six. Really? So, yes. And it was true for all my people who were Tory fans. Um, is that true for you guys? Or you kind of like got it right away? Or did you even mistake it as proof? I remember reading it as riot proof the Uh, very first time i read the track listing and then like almost immediately realizing it was riot poof mm -hmm. not knowing what a poof was at the time and i had the same experience with professional window which I read it as Professional Window. <laughs> That's still one of my favorites. When I first read the track listing, it was Professional Window. But within that, like, 30 minutes, like, really, like, maybe the third time I read it, I was like, oh, it's Widow. Oh, man. So, yeah. That's still, like, such a sick burn to me. Like, we know what that bitch is up to. She is completely transparent. She's, like, nothing but a professional window. Ooh, shit. I never thought of, like, so what that would mean. But you're right. <laughs> what a transparent. I see right through you, bitch. <laughs> Was there a typo on something or like, why did this become a mistake? So No, Riot Proof definitely always had a typo. And I credit our episode. I credit this Riot Proof episode because when we recorded it and released it, it was still Riot Proof on Spotify. And then suddenly, oh. maybe a week after our episode came out, it was Riot Poof on Spotify. They changed it. Ugh. So this is something that never caught on with me. I never fell into the proof trap. For some reason, oh. I think because like at that point, I was even more fully tuned into everything Tori was saying and doing and was probably like even more gatekeepery <laughs> than I am now. I just like, yes, Is that I, was, possible? I was a stick. I don't know. It seems to have been. I was like a stickler for the details. And because like I knew it was poof, I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember ever thinking it was proof or getting confused about it. But mm. mm-hmm. all right. I thought it was like everyone had this. So, okay. No, I think a lot of people did, though. David was really examining the letters so that he could make fun of them on a dent in Tori's ass, Adita. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he was hyper vigilant. So don't worry about that, Shay. <laughs> that episode, we had a gay panel. It was a lot of fun. And Matthew from Australia wrote us to say, with your American accent, poof sounds like a cute little poof of air or something. It makes me think of Cartman from South Park saying cheesy poof. But the way we say poof in a, an abbreviation of poofter pronounced poofta. It definitely has some more sting to it. Hard to explain over text. I think it's also a very 80s, 90s expression, and I could totally see some of the hetero crew on that tour, especially if British, making jokes and calling that crew member that the song is about a poof or a poofter, leading Tori to say, no, fuck that. Let's reclaim that for you, and you go off. Luckily, Matthew's provided us with audio so we can hear him say it. So we would say poof, which is short for poofter. I see it. This is not the first time Tori and Cartman have been mentioned in the same breath on this show. It's true. I will oh, you're say that. So right. I wonder if Cheesy Poof had anything to do with it. Do you think that like inspired Pip's cruel rants? She was like, Yes, yes. It's like, ma'am, Cheesy Poof. <laughs> 
Oh my god. You're just an evil little clit. Yeah. I know you are just an evil little clit. Oh god. Why don't you read these comments from Instagram? This is coming in from Patrick Lemire Music. Such a great episode with like hands up paradise. Honestly, thank you for unwrapping to Venus and Back for me, an album I had always low-key overlooked. Monkey covering his eyes, see no evil. Now I'm starting to obsess. Fire emoji. Fire. B's company, Brandon, messaged the David Eve banter in this episode was especially candid, and I loved it. <laughs> Blue heart. Oh. When people say things like that, I am afraid to listen back. Me too. Because <laughs> I'm afraid of what I said. I'm afraid of what I did, of who I am. But most of all, I'm afraid of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. Same. Serial witch Erica commented, Moistening! With three exclamation marks. Moistening! <laughs> Shut up! It had to be said. It had to. The podcast's first true love, Alexander Leger Small, wrote us after Riot Poof to say, love, love, loving the Riot Poof episode. Just finishing the line by line and had to share because all the context you put around the song gave me possible insight. The sun is warming, my man is moistening, lyric, started to read as a warning to me for the homophobes. The sun is like that interrogation spotlight and it's shining on them now. They can't hide what they know you know, and now they're sweating, moistening, because they gotta face their truth. Thanks for always being fucking awesome. Let's talk about that. That revealed something to me. Like, the time is now, the time is happening. We're like getting closer to something. The sun is warming, my man is moistening. I feel like there is a little bit of like the tide is turning. Mm. But if you think of like thawing, like you're frozen in time and then the sun comes out, you start to like drip and you melt. Like maybe she's talking about moistening that way and like we're coming alive, we're getting activated, we're getting recharged by the sun to come fight. It's like a protest song. You know what this brings to mind for me reading his comment is this is kind of like the flip side of raining blood and the way she talks about the raining blood character and her envisioning like a giant vagina like raining blood upon all these men this is like the warm sun of homosexuality kind of melting away (laughs) homophobia and turning the world into like a giant sweaty rave or something oh my god amazing that would be fun foam party (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah eric williams says Riot Poof has always been my to Venus and back fave, but I haven't tried tackling the meaning of the lyrics before now. I love how, like Juarez is sung from the POV of the desert, that Riot Poof is sung from the POV of an all-encompassing Mother Earth. And then he goes on to give us a really insightful look into his thoughts, which we'll post on our show notes page, songsofdramus.com. Janelle says, y'all have been working. Three episodes this month is an amazing achievement. Some months are dry, Janelle. <laughs> Some months are dry. And then M. Kigi Tweedy says, I've already heard the episode and I love it. Respect the gays. Thank you. Honey, Prozac is like Gerber baby food compared to this. Oh, the Daytura episode honestly changed my life in my relationship with that song. Not many episodes changed my relationship with a song, but that one did. Really? Say more. Well, because probably one of my favorite moments of the whole season was listening to Yanta's full cover of Daytura. Mm. I had never given it consideration like that before. It really changed my opinion on the song. I really loved it. Yeah, it was a good one. And as far as the Yanta moment, I feel the same. Like, he's a genius first. It totally brings out parts of songs that I really didn't even know existed, you know, that are so beautiful because they're, you know, buried in whichever way or for whatever reason. Support Yanta, patreon.com slash Yanta. You want to read this from Q Magazine? Oh, my God. This is a performance. 
David and Che, hit it. From Q Magazine, September 2001. Tori says, it's not like I've ever done cocaine, but on the whole... Wait, wait, wait. It's not like like I've I've never never done. done. (laughs) It's not like I've never done cocaine. I need to get my brain on straight. It's not like I've never done cocaine, but on the whole, if I can't see dancing elephants, I'm not interested. The drug which has had a big effect on me was ayahuasca. It comes from a vine in the Amazon and you ingest it. You know that stuff that they take in the Emerald Forest? It's like that. I was hanging around with some medicine women, and they suggested I try it. I was very lucid, but I felt like I was walking around in Fantasia having a conversation with myself. It isn't like acid. It's more emotional, more mental. But it can grab you by the balls and just shove you up against a wall. I've been in a room with a woman who was literally trying to bite her own arm off. And this lasted for 15 hours. I wasn't scared, just scared that I'd make a fool of myself. The funny thing was, I kept laughing and laughing, rather than sitting in the corner being intense. Then, every so often, I'd say, I'm in a really rough patch. And one of the medicine women would come over and reassure me that everything was going to be all right. I haven't taken it in a couple of years now. You can only really do it once in a blue moon. But the wild thing is that sometimes I only have to smell something and I'm right back there again, high as a kite. Wow, let's talk about this. I imagine this is the very first part of this episode and Tori sat down with her journalist from Q and he was like, thank you so much for being here with us today, Tori. And she just launches into, well, it's not like I've never done cocaine, but on the whole, <laughs> it's like, I can't, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> I just can't imagine Tori on cocaine. I can imagine her smoking pot. I can imagine her on all kinds of like hallucinogenics, but there's something about cocaine where it would be like incredibly intense to see Tori Amos doing a line. <laughs> Tori likes to talk about other people doing cocaine, that's for sure. She likes to talk about people being cocaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's to imagine Tori really on any drug, even drunk. Although we have had a little glimpse of her drunkenness, possibly. At- when? When, Shay? The sessions thing with David Byrne, right? Yeah, 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 right? And I, I could have seen myself a thousand years ago go do this. I don't see myself as this pious person. I, I am a bit volatile. And um, yet... I- I don't really like confrontation, but I don't, you know, if it comes in front of me, it's like, I'm going to go for it. So you think it's as dangerous for you as it is for the audience? Oh. No, I think it's dangerous if I didn't have music. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's a bit of a disagreement there, correct? (laughs) The funny thing to me in these quotes is where she's like, I was hanging around with some medicine women. Like she just brings those kinds of things into her conversations so lightly. Like when she says, oh, you know, they came backstage. It's always like, you know, a shaman came and visited me in my dressing room in Denver, like, or whatever, you know, it's like so normal for her. She's like, I tripped down the stairs in Amsterdam, but thank God the seven sisters were there (laughs) to set me back. She's just so casually like, oh, yeah, I, I'm hanging out with this visionary or <laughs> medium. or I don't know. And it's like, that's not a common thing, really. I, you know what I'm going to say? And she just kind of throws it out there like, yeah, me and my best friend or whatever. Like, it's so casual for her. Would either of you ever do ayahuasca? Definitely would have back in the day. I'm not quite sure, though. It does seem pretty intense. And there's such a wide variety, maybe, of the way people experience it. So I don't don't know. I don't know if it would be a good thing for me or if it would be, like, scary. I'm going to be a hard no on that one. (laughs) There was no world where I thought you would even be maybe. Yeah, I don't need substances to sit with crippling anxiety and depression and want to chew off my own arm (laughs) in shame. So, like, why would I try to amp that up in any way? (laughs) Yeah, because there are periods of laughter. Oh, I have those here. 
Why don't you read this, David, from the Sunday Herald in Scotland on September 2nd, 2001. Tori completely changed her life to give her baby every chance of survival. She is obsessive about her music, determined to weed out each tiny glitch, a process she refers to as ant-fucking, but bowed out during the pregnancy. I played a lot of piano, moved to a beach house in Florida, and helped to plant a garden, an exotic garden. Detura is in my garden. Detura is an hallucinogenic plant, sometimes known as mad apple. We'll have to watch that with the baby. That's a whole other level of baby proofing most people never have to worry about it's like babe did you check the datura okay yeah lock away the hallucinogens <laughs> yeah <laughs> i didn't know it was called mad apple though i don't think we talked about that no i don't think so either matthew from australia wrote in to say i swear i have seen or read an interview many many years ago where she said that she's not listing the plants in her garden but is listing her ex-lovers i believe in most interviews she takes the protective route and says they are plants and the hurricane destroyed them and blah 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 because that's easier than really getting into the truth of the song we know she loves loves to protect her truth like this. And then Shay found an article that Matthew from Australia might be referring to, which is from Attitude Magazine in November 99. Why don't you read that, Shay? So she says, I'm talking about the times when lines have been crossed by men. Men can be dangerous, like in the song De Tora, and how sometimes they can bring you gold and sometimes they can be the bearer of poison. The plant De Tora is a hallucinogen and it's like men. If you get the right amount, you'll walk into the garden and become a woman. But if too much seeps in the wrong way and at the wrong time, it'll kill you. I like this idea that they have different associations. Like she's listing certain plants, but she's associating with different people. Yeah. Are we to believe that every single plant corresponds to a man like chocolate cherries alamanda she's like that's chad yes i am to believe because she's talked numerous times about her previous life yeah that is a long list maybe if this is what's happening in the song that they're codes for men maybe some of the plant names are certain people that she's connecting those to and then like a short list are like maybe feelings or i don't know something that goes along with that person and that relationship in her mind all coded, but maybe they're not each a single person. I am not afraid of a high body count. <laughs> Matthew from Australia goes on to say, if so, I think that the frangipani was someone that got away or someone that she's not sure about, not sure what happened or why it ended. He gets a second mention with a question mark, so he's someone that stands out from the list. But then when you discuss Detura as a dark drug and the reports of a dark wolf, black dog, or scary incidents, it made me think that Detura was her big heartbreak, possibly even a scary or traumatic experience. Maybe even the traumatic experience referenced in Me and a Gun, and that's why the song is called Detura and not frangipani, or someone sweet like Weeping Sebaku, as those guys were definitely someone, but not earth-shattering, life-changing the way Detura was. If that is the case, that would explain why she wouldn't want to talk about it further than those were my plants that survived the hurricane. Furthermore, it could also explain why she's never brought herself to perform the song live. Yes, the song is complicated and she has performed me in a gun, but they, if they're connected, they're looking at the situation from two different angles. Also, she's chanting, get out of my garden because Detour is not someone she wants in her garden, but he's in there, maybe uninvited, and his memory remained the strongest and she's trying to get rid of him. It is an evil plant that needs to be eradicated. What do we think? So much of this makes sense to me. I think it's great. I think it's a great interpretation. What do you think, David? I think so, too. I need to take a big breath on that. I love Matthew from Australia. Thank you. French Japani? Mark Firewalk with me one wrote us to say, I swear, every time you do a podcast on a Tory song, it becomes my new favorite. Now it's Daytura. Same girl. That is wonderful. 
After Daytura, Michael Levesque messaged us to say, love, love, love the Daytura episode. Especially glad that you went into details on the strange time signatures. Even though for Daytura it makes it too challenging to play live, many of her other songs have unique time signatures that speak to the genius of Tori and also her band in playing them live. So, in fact, I must say I was a tad disappointed on the Spark episode you did not mention the 13th beat in the verse. I don't know the technical term for that one or what the signature is called. So please don't miss it on the Carbon episode, old-timey happy face. But thank you again for the podcast, The Incredible Daytura episode. God, the 13th beat, it gets us every time. I can't believe we didn't mention it. That 13th beat. This is from a music blog called rebelmusicteacher.com in which Emily Langerholk in her article called Changing Meter in Tori and Mrs. Spark says, Most of Spark is written in symmetrical compound meter here in 6-8 time, but other measures of compound meter are thrown in throughout the song. The first example of this is a 7-8 measure, 8 measures and 12 seconds into the song and frequently heard throughout the verses of the song. The choruses are steadier in meter with changes occurring at the end of the choruses. The meter changes to accommodate the number of rests that Amos includes before launching into the second verse. This song can serve as a challenging example for students trying to count along and follow the meter. And I think this is sort of remnant of Tori before she would work with the band, you know? when the performers would play around her. And in the past, we've had like George Porter Jr. say, and some of the guitarists that she worked with say she would like slow down tempo and speed up tempo is really like maddening sometimes. And that's why it was hard for her to find a drummer before Manu Kache. I love it. I want to be Uncle Fucker. <laughs> All I have to say is I may forget this for Carbon, Michael Levesque. So as soon as Strange comes out, make sure you email us. Mm. Make sure you email us again. Purification. Soul. Acceptance. Spring Haze. Why don't you read this, David, from Matthew from Australia? Matthew wrote us to say, hello again. I have some Spring Haze thoughts regarding the JFK Jr. debate. I have never really given that theory much thought, but I feel it could be one of two things. Either an omen slash premonition or another easy way in interviews to deflect from the truth of the song to protect herself in the same way I previously wrote about Daytura and give the people a way into the song without letting them go all the way in. For me personally, I have always translated the song to be about depression and a close sister to suede. The dark clouds billow out so far that they reach her happy place on the Luna Riviera but I'm certain they will pass and the sunshine will return. Luna Riviera is one of my most favorite phrases in any of her songs. I wish I could have discussed this with you as it really transports me to another world. A Riviera on the moon? How amazing! As I said in my Suede interview, I've been obsessed with the cosmos since I was a kid. Did you know that early astronomers observing the moon thought that the dark patches on the moon were actually seas? 
There are around 15 or so seas and they even have names. There is also an ocean and many lakes and bays. I was always fascinated by the Sea of Tranquility, where Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon. From the moment I heard the line Luna Riviera, I imagined a scene from the Italian Riviera with rows of sun chairs and orange or yellow striped umbrellas and cabanas lined up along the edge of the sparkling Sea of Tranquility on the moon and Tori, or picturing myself, kicking back with a cocktail, Aperol Spritz, and being at peace with all she has been through or at least having a vacation from that part of her life. Not far from the Sea of Tranquility on the moon is the Sea of Serenity, the Sea of Fecundity slash Fertility, and the Sea of Nectar, all possible spots for Tori's Luna Riviera. Off topic, and because you don't have much going on, lol, I would love you to start a Tori encyclopedia. There are recurring symbols throughout the songs, and we need to have them all deciphered. The clouds that are billowing out to somewhere, are they the same as the cloud on my tongue cloud? As the clouds that she is bouncing off? As your cloud that you pick out? As the clouds that have riders? I think the cloud is a symbol that means the same thing to her, and it has a certain darkness or heaviness to it. The big vision would be to make a physical encyclopedia book zine of all the symbols with artwork from the community. There is a Tori Encyclopedia online, and I don't know if anybody knows about it. It's the Torypedia. It's toriamus.fandom.com. And there's also torypedia.info, which is like specifically dedicated to Tori. So torypedia.info. But I love this idea of a print book with like the symbols and like sketches, you know? Mm. I love that idea. But what I can't get behind is an Aperol Spritz. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> But that's not the point of this. I really actually knew nothing about the Sea of Tranquility or the Sea of Fecundity or the Sea of Nectar or Serenity. Matthew was gracious enough to give us some links, which we'll put in our show notes page, songsoftramus.com, and there are links to all of this stuff that he's talking about. I love the idea of Luna Riviera. I want to get that tattooed on my body. Yeah, that's one of your favorite phrases, too. It is such a beautiful set of words that just, they love each other. Luna loves Riviera. Riviera loves Luna. Moving on, Falk on Instagram had this to say about Spring Haze. Hello, just listening to the Spring Haze episode, talking about possible inspirations. Did you consider the story of the little girl piloting a plane and dying with her father crashing it? Jessica Dubroff. It was even a single engine Cessna. They also considered not taking off because of the weather. That did happen right around that time. Jessica Whitney Dubroff, which we'll put the whole Wikipedia page on our show notes, but it's a wild story, which absolutely I think could have influenced the song in some way. When did that happen? 1996. Oh, okay. Yeah. Longtime listener and pandemic savior Amber E. wrote in to say, I finally listened to all of the Spring Haze episode and it provided so much insight to a song that I have loved and thought I knew so well for the last 20 years. I just wanted to let you know and thank you for putting so many new thoughts in my mind. I was especially moved by the idea of those final sounds on the end of the song being the very last of Tori as we knew her in the 90s before it goes into A Thousand Oceans, which is really like a crossover song in her sound. I'll leave it at that without dumping all my thoughts on you, which is something I know I've done to you in the past. But as always, wonderful work. I especially enjoyed Danica's interview. Oh, Danica. Thank you, Amber. And you never have to worry about dumping all over us. (laughs) Yeah. That thought that you guys put out there about A Thousand Oceans, I totally agree. Like, and I'd never thought about it before either, but it was such an eye-opening thought when I heard you guys talking about that. I was like, oh, it's so true. It really is. And so I just want to say thank you as well. Oh, there's something unsettling for me about that because Carnival comes in, although Carnival is an anomaly off to the side, you know, because it's not an album track and it is a cover technically. And that's just like sonically where she was at that moment. But I do think that A Thousand Oceans is the crossover. What do you think, David? 
Well, that line of questioning or that part of the conversation came strictly from you. I hadn't necessarily considered that before, I don't think. But yeah, for sure. Oh. It is a sea change, if you will, um, there at the end of Venus. So Valerie Lord questioned, I'm listening to the Spring Haze episode in bits on my commute. Do you think Luna Riviera could be a reference to Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's? I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's... A possibility, of course, as all of these thoughts are, but I think that it might be a little closer to what Matthew was talking about. After Spring Haze, Jenny Lee wrote us to say, Just listen to the Spring Haze episode. Fun and informative as always. I'm going to be real with y'all. My reading of Spring Haze was always more sexual, mm. which still connects to your relationship reading. It's a little like riot poof in the beginning, so all we do is circle it. Uh-oh, let go. Off on my way. Tori is circling her sexual feelings, waiting for Sunday, church day, to drown so she can get creamed unseen this eternal wanting let go way to go so i get creamed her only way way out is to go so far in i.e into her sexuality she can't resist it the spring haze she puts she's putting all these in quotes that's why i'm saying it like that the spring haze is fantasy (laughs) and imagination why does it always end up like this is about how true connection appreciation and understanding can elude you in romance anyway just an idea vis-a-vis tori's funeral i saw that more in witness when she says i know now that it's over had a life before as i see the beekeeper as tori's first shift into adult contemporary mode i see her fierce rock power in songs like happiness is a warm gun justice for strange little girls i don't think it ends necessarily in venus let's address both of these we did get a lot of messages and i didn't put them all in here because it made me slightly uncomfortable (laughs) referencing the cream so i get creamed as being like a sexual reference what do we think (laughs) no are we firmly in the no camp i definitely do not think it's sexual at all I would agree. You know, we're often accused of like sexualizing or in some cases over sexualizing, I guess, Tori's lyrics. But like after reading some of these comments, I'm never going to feel bad about peanut butter hand again. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to dismiss it entirely. So I get creamed. Could be. I think that these sonic structures house many interpretations. You know, once they're out in the world, they belong to the world, as she said. So I can't say no. But what I can say no about is Witness being a change of time period or the beekeeper even. And yeah, I do think that the beekeeper opened a whole new like adult contemporary sound. But to me, that started with New Age. Even if you look at it in a literary context at the end of the 90s, the beginning of the aughts, starting with a song called New Age, ending with a funeral song, I feel like it's perfect, right? I agree with that. I'm still stuck on creamed. I'm sure we like talked about it extensively, but that's like a common phrase. Even if you're like watching football or something and someone gets like run into or tackled, you'd be like, oh, that guy got creamed. It's also a common phrase in sexuality. Is it? Getting creamed? Like maybe you creamed your jeans or something like well, that. <laughs> oh yeah, creaming Jesus again. What was, wasn't that what she called that song? Creaming oh, Jesus again? That's true. Yeah. So if you think about the only time she's used the word creamed, not in Spring Haze, was when she said she's currently writing a song where the lyrics go creaming Jesus again. And I wonder if she was referencing Spring Haze. So she said that before, before Spring Haze? It was supposed to be... In zero point. Mm -hmm. She had creaming on the mind during her writing of Venus. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She sure did. I can't find the article, but it's there somewhere. 
this conversation about, you know, just words that she uses brings to mind the little bit you guys put together for hair pie, like in memoriam and never using certain words again. That was genius. And I believe that you should still continue on with it at the end of each <laughs> album from now on. <laughs> You're like, we're retiring the word creaming. Right. Every era or several of her eras have certain phrases and talking points that she brings up in interviews or words that she seems really into. Venus was all about creaming, I guess, but also like walking the missionary way and her fear of being greater than her faith. She peppered that in like a lot of interviews. But you see, it's not like I've never done cocaine, but my fear is greater than my faith. That's because she was in a fierce calm. Oh, yes, of course. Also a fierce calm. Uh huh. Blew me away at their depth of love. We did our Thousand Oceans episode, and Reggie Doherty, collaborator and constant source of artistic inspiration, had this to say afterwards. He was reading a book called Mythology of the British Isles by Jeffrey Ash, as one does, and sent us this excerpt. Why don't you read this, David? The notion that the whole area is a single religious complex, embracing the West Kennet Barrow with the rest, was proposed by Michael Dames. According to this, rituals were performed at the sites in a seasonal cycle. The starting point of Dames' idea was his belief that Silbury, with its moat, forms a shape which recalls prehistoric figurines representing a goddess, the Earth Mother. This theory has its place in modern myth-making as part of a more general claim about ancient religion, put forward widely and seriously. In 1961, Sibyl von Klesreden argued that the megalith builders were devotees of a great goddess, or rather, the great goddess. On many grounds beside this, it has been contended that divinity was once female, or predominantly so, and the rise of male gods was a major change, perhaps due to a shift in the sex's relative importance. Robert Graves and others have claimed that numerous Greek myths are recastings of older ones with a goddess orientation. In the intersex of a male-governed Olympus, Britain has less literary matter to subject to this kind of analysis. Reggie then commented, and if Silbury Hill is the Earth Mother Goddess, then surely that's a version of Venus? Question mark To Venus and back, and that's the last track on the album? Is there a connection? Perhaps? So she's a genius. It all lines up. Yeah, it really does. Of course, you can follow Reggie, R-D-R-T-Y, on Instagram, and also Reggie does costumes. That's his new one, like costume designer. I'm sure you'll find it. We'll link to it in our show notes. Follow Reggie. It turns out that not only is the future female, but the past was too. And he had absolutely nothing on beneath his navel down. You know what? I love Carnival. It's perhaps one of my greatest photoshopping jobs. Mm-hmm. Other people seem to think so, too. Yeah. Tanya said, I have peaked. <laughs> Tanya Rigotti said, you may die now. Thank you. <laughs> Why don't you read this, Shay, from Jean Fossey on Instagram? Loved the deep dive into Carnival. Such an underrated gem. I don't know if anyone may have mentioned or even thought of this, but you mentioned that this girl always comes in November. I'm wondering if that ties into the time that Tori found out she was carrying Tosh. Maybe there's a connection there, or maybe I just think way too much about all things Tori. You know, if I'm going to start mocking Jean Fossey for spending too much time thinking about Tori, <laughs> that's a slippery slope for me and David. Yeah, there's so, no... No, not enough time, Jean. <laughs> I don't know if the math adds up on that, though. I was just trying to do it. Why? Because she would have been like 11 months pregnant at that point, 10 months pregnant. Like Tasha was born in September, right? You know, like altitude when you're baking bread, it like changes when you're at sea level versus okay. when you're in the mountains. I don't know why that is, but like probably the same thing happens with pregnancies. Okay. Yeah. She wanted a Virgo. And why wouldn't you? She wanted Tosh to be born time to the release of Strange Little Girls, so. <laughs> exactly. 
And then we did a special episode, our top 60 bonus songs episode, <laughs> and we forgot a lot. We forgot a lot of stuff. Oh, no. We had about 200 people send in their top 60 lists, so that's 12,000 Tory songs ranked, basically. <laughs> I loved reading them, and I won't name names, but I'm convinced that one of you made a list of my 60 least favorite Tory songs of all time. Come on, when Rose Dover's in your top five, you're telling me... Mr. Badman, come on. Top five? I love Mr. Badman. Just saying. I love that song. Top five? No, not top five, but I love that song. I mean, I like that song too. Ryan Crawford sent us his top 60, and can you believe he included 97 Bonnie and Clyde? Does he deserve a gentle roasting, David? To each his own. What can I say? I just think it's an interesting choice to put any cover in your top five, regardless of the one that it is. Also, Joe Olson did a statistical analysis of his top 60 and ours and found that we're only a 25% match. This is the Tinder I want to see. Just imagine it. We've thought about like a Tory dating app, haven't we? No, but it's because Sugar sounded like a lesbian dating app. Well, obviously it would have to be called Spark. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. That's great. Or Flickr, I guess. Spark is like more assertive. You don't think it'd be called um, Bang? It's like the gay dating app. You know, Bang has to be like the gay male version, but Flickr has to be yeah. the, the lady version. <laughs> <laughs> Flickr and Bang, but the real version is Spark. Oh, yes. <laughs> Brandon Hellman wrote to say, I love, love, love the new episode. You both made excellent choices. I appreciated a few potential head scratchers mixed in with obvious choices. I have a lot of those as well. He also put Marianne's as number one, so work. What head scratchers? Excuse me? <laughs> What head scratchers? Brandon, I want to know what head scratchers. I want to know when exactly you scratched your head and what part of your head. (laughs) Sydney H. also sent their list, which included such bold choices as Fire to Your Plane, Devil's Bane, and one E fought hard for General Joy. Uh, Is there anything that I wish I could have included but didn't? Mm, Yeah, we talked about here in my head. I think that should be on there. David, I need you to pause. I found your soulmate. Oh, finally. I know. Her name is Candace McEnroth. And she also put Mother as her number one Tory song of all time. Dang. That's all. That's all you need. Good choice, (laughs) Candace. Can I call you Candy? I mean, we're soulmates, so. Yeah, might as well. Jimmy also put Our New Year on their list. So thanks, Jimmy. That was James. Brian Duty expressed the conundrum of even making a list by saying this. Longtime listener of the regular pod and Tory and extremely new patron subscriber. Absolutely loved hearing your lists and rapidly put mine together. I feel like I will disagree with this list and be like, why no beekeeper, etc. in a week or so. But alas. Isn't that the way? Yeah, that's how it goes. Sometimes it do be like that. Is that what people say? <laughs> Sometimes it do be that way. Yeah. <laughs> Stefania Hoffman said, here goes, but please note this list could totally change tomorrow. Maybe. So yeah, we're all in the same boat here. Especially because we were running a contest, which by the way, I'm so sorry. I just occurred to me that that pile right there by my desk are the birthday presents that I've never sent out. There they are. I'll send them out on Monday. It's because they closed the post office across the street from my house. And it's already hard for me to get to a post Yeah, office. I know. Too bad there's only that one in the world. You know what? It's true. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That is inconvenient. You hate the post office, I know. Go post yourself. We continue to receive comments from older episodes that weren't in the Tavinus and Back season, so we're going to read some of those here. Why don't you read this one, David? New listener Danielle commented on the Crucify episode, and they said, Hello from Brazil. I've just discovered the podcast, and I look forward to spending the rest of 2022 with you guys. There's very little in this world I find more beautiful than fan research. You are amazing. Stop. Thanks, Danielle. 
from the Not the Red Baron episode, longtime listener and supporter Chris Gray wrote to say, Hi guys, I know your Boys for Pele season is over. I just had a thought about Not the Red Baron that I thought you might be interested in. I remember on your Baron episode in the live section, you talked briefly about how Tori suddenly stopped playing it on the Do Drop In tour after playing it almost every single night and how it seemed kind of odd. Now, if he addresses this, thank you, because I was thinking about that the other day. I'm like, oh damn, she just dropped that song. She really did. So, Chris says, I was recently watching the very, very good Andy Warhol documentary on Netflix, and in a later episode, it mentions how Warhol's ex-partner died on the TWA 800 crash in 1996. Flight TWA 800 crashed into the ocean near the New York coastline on July 17, 1996 at about 8.31 p.m. All 230 people on board died. It is the third deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history. That day, Tori did two shows in Seattle. So I did a little digging, as I am always fascinated about how Tori incorporates real-world events into her live shows and how these might have an effect on her song choices, thinking that maybe she played a special version of Red Baron as it was about plane crashing. And I realized that up to July 17th, she had played it at almost every single show on that tour 107 times. She also played it that night in the first Seattle show. I don't actually know the timings of when she would play two shows in a night, but she was likely on stage at the exact time of the crash. She played it again in Eugene three days later on July 20th, and then she never played it again the whole tour. She also only played it twice in 1998, and one of those times was in Eugene again. Of course, it might not have any bearing on it at all. It's just something that struck me, and I thought you might want to know. Can you think of any other example where she has played a song so much and then she just suddenly stopped halfway through a tour? Maybe she found it too hard to sing after that. I don't know about you, David. I think this is absolutely the reason. I mean, it was a huge news story, and it would seem almost insensitive, right? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't remember it being a big news story at the time, but it's clearly something that she would have been aware of. I'm trying to think of another moment where she wouldn't play something that... What was it she playing? Pretty Good Year, for example, during 2001. Yes, that's what came to mind for me, too. Yeah, she was like, you know why? Because it's not... Yeah, I think this is spot on, Chris. My God. I'm just trying to think of another example where she wouldn't play a song because it seemed kind of inappropriate. I thought the same thing was going to be for Codalite Sneeze during COVID. Oh, wait, we did talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, but she did play it. (laughs) I bet Shaggy that she would not do it, and she did it first night, like third song. Why did you read this, David, for the IIE episode? Uh, One of Eve's favorite new listeners, and you'll see why here in a sec, her name is Betty Nelms, and she wrote us to say hi. First of all, I'm a big fan, Patreon supporter person. I really enjoy what you guys do, particularly your line-by-line sections. Anyway, I don't know if A, this is a reach, or B, this is something you're already aware of, but I read a poem that reminded me of IIE. It references a chapel in a garden of love, and it's right up Tori's alley, subject matter-wise. Anyway, I've included it just in case you've never checked it out before thank you for your time and for everything you do for the tory community the garden of love by william blake i went to the garden of love and saw what i never had seen a chapel was built in the midst where i used to play on the green and the gates of the chapel were shut and thou shalt not writ o'er the door so i turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore and i saw it was filled with graves the tombstones where flowers should be and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires that rhyme scheme went off on that last verse on that last stanza hmm. 
Betty also wrote us to say, hi, this is for the Northern Lot episode. Hi, sorry to bother you again. Betty, you are never bothering us. Write us every minute. I'm listening to the Northern Lad episode right now. I'm currently on the part of the line-by-line line where you talk about that line, I feel the West in you, and I had a thought. In Walk to Dublin, she says, let me plague myself with the West in his head. Unconfirmed. I don't know how, but I think they're connected. Maybe it's something about feeling your partner wants out or wants freedom, like when people would go out West to start a new life. Maybe she was thinking about Mark while writing Walk to Dublin, or maybe it's something she's been through before, first with Eric, when she was feeling he was going to leave her, and then later in Northern Lad. She's worried about the same thing happening. Just my rambling thoughts. And for all I know, maybe you'll bring up Walk to Dublin later in the episode. And this email would have been totally pointless. But I just wanted to mention it before I forgot. Thank you for your time. I My favorite thing is when people email as they're listening. And then they write back, oops, you mentioned that. Sorry. <laughs> I think I've done that a few times, like texted you something. And then it comes I love like it. five minutes later. <laughs> It's like live <laughs> tweeting. I love it. But I do feel, I don't know if they're connected, and I'm curious how Betty's so confident about these lyrics for Walk to Dublin. Mm. The West and it. I guess, she's, I guess she's pretty clear there. Yeah, I think that's what she's saying. Michael Earp sent us a very thorough interpretation of cooling, which we've uploaded to our website, songsoftramus.com. You can read the whole thing there, but we'll share this excerpt. Hit it, Shay. Firstly, I really feel like any and all dialogues happening in this song are with herself. Occasionally, she'll reference someone else, but really she's talking to herself, assessing the relationship. When Tori sings, Women, You've Got Too Many Brambles Hiding Under These Bushes, for me, this was always a conversation with herself, that she was chiding herself for not being fresh, new, a virgin. Her brambles are her baggage, the things that interfere with the easy flowing of a relationship, a past. The bushes are what people see and admire, but the brambles are hidden away. It makes me think of an unkempt garden. They run wild and are not what people choose to put in their garden, per se. Less containable. So she's too wild, with womanness, luscious, for his taste. But she's also reprimanding herself for what makes her, her. I like that. Yeah, I definitely think she's talking to herself. Woman, you got too many brambles there, for sure. For me, though, it's a very sexual song, which I discovered during that episode in my opinion. Cooling is? Yeah. What? Yes, this ocean is wrapped around that pineapple tree. Let's not equivocate. Creaming Jesus again. For some <laughs> reason, I've always like imagined the woman that has too many brambles, as, like an old woman, kind of like from Mary Poppins, the one that feeds the pigeons. The pigeon lady? <laughs> no, I don't know why I always imagine her as like having too many brambles under these bushes. Like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Great imagery. Beth Iyer commented on our Beulah Land episode, and this is what she had to say. Hi, I love your podcast so much. I just wanted to ask if you've ever thought of Licorice Man as Lord Licorice, the main antagonist in the board game Candyland. From the game rules, there are three licorice spaces on the path. These licorice spaces were put here by the sneaky Lord Licorice to try to slow you down. If you land on one of these spaces by exact count, your gingerbread character is stuck there for one turn. There's also an entire backstory from Hasbro, apparently about King Candy disappearing from Candyland. Land. Lord Licorice claims to have hidden them from sight so all of Candyland can be mine. I actually think it's true. 
<laughs> I don't, uh, but it's, <laughs> it's like kind of funny to me that Hasbro has written these characters with like a backstory and everything. It's like, uh, you know, Hasbro doll posse or whatever. Like they have their own like world. Oh, and... they have their blogs. Yeah. It's a fun thought though, to have this be connected to a board game. Listen to the lyrics where she says licorice man. She says, Beulah Land got a wasted gun. Licorice man, I'll sum you up. And then later she goes on to say, got a rubber board. Does she mean board game? Is she floating on a board game? On a crocodile going to float on past your home? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Should we design a board game called Beulah Land that's Tori inspired though? Ooh. Go for it. Okay. I guess it won't be a collaborative project then. I'll do it with you, David. I think it sounds fun. Oh, that'd be cute. Let me know when I can play. We had one final comment, and this is from Daniel Faree, who said about the touring show. You want to read this, David? Daniel says, Hi, friend David and fabulous archivist Shay. What an amazing tour. I love that one of my favorite albums, To Venus and Back, is getting so much airplay. Can't wait for the Bliss episode, but I know you're telling up the stats. I wanted to say this a while ago. Your podcast really made my lockdown in South Africa a little bit more bearable. I think I listened to thousands of hours of content while we were all under virtual house arrest. Love, love, love the tour coverage. It's a pity this tour might not reach South Africa. Tori spoke about it to a local radio DJ. Thank you for an amazing podcast. Greetings from Johannesburg. That's about the touring show. Yeah. Two of our other shows, Tour Night and Tour All Year. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for all the support. We have thousands of hours of content. (laughs) Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for our wrap-up. It was seven hours long, but it's it. It's over. Well, there was a lot to wrap. You know, at the end of every season, I feel like that was my favorite season. I felt like that in Pele. I felt like that in Choir Girl. I felt like that now. This was a really fun time. You you guys just, like, improve over time. You know, that's probably why you get better and better. Oh, well, thanks. A compliment? <laughs> Where do we go from here? Thus concludes our wrap-up. I'm sorry to cut it long, y'all. <laughs> It's been a good two years. It's been two years, David. Oh, my goodness. Flies by. It was a great season. To Shay, thank you for everything that you've done for us. You've really upped our game. You've really helped us out. Um, does anybody have anything to say before we put Venus in the can? We didn't think it was possible, but it turns out it was possible. We finished. <laughs> Here we are. C'est. The end of Venus. C'est si beau. C'est, C'est si beau. beau. Or as Emily Cousins would say, saucy bull. Saucy bull. That's why I like Emily Cousins, if that's her real name. I have a question um, that includes Emily, actually. There was a time that you guys uh, were speaking and David, you had received some tea, but Ephraim was upset that he never got any tea. So Ephraim, did you ever get the tea? No. Oh. (laughs) I forgot. I forgot I was upset. I forgot I was pissed. (laughs) No, I don't drink tea. (laughs) I'm glad you complained about it so much then. I have two things to say about Emily Cousins, if that will be okay. One, that tea that you were referring to absolutely changed my life, and currently in my cabinet right now, I have eight boxes of it because it's seasonal and I'm afraid it's gonna run out. So I have stored up. It's so good. And also, if we ever do another version of Digital Ghosts and have like a Halloween costume party, I 100% expect Emily Cousins to show up as a saucy bowl. Mm. <laughs> Wait, the tea changed your life? <laughs> 
Yes. I'm, I'm not letting this go. Okay. <laughs> I want some tea to change my life. It came at the exact right time, and I happened to get sick last year, which I did again this year too, and it was like, it's so good and soothing and harvesty and just delicious. So when it came back this year, I like got a cart and filled it up with boxes of this tea. I mean, I guess I'm not a tea girl. But for my birthday, Emily Cousins sent me space dog socks, hot dog socks in outer space. That is a true gift from Emily Cousins. Yeah. This has been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you all for all of it. Thank you. Great season. I really enjoyed helping you out and listening to each episode. Thank you to everyone out there for listening and subscribing on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you find podcasts. We couldn't do any of this without our wonderful and generous Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a supporter, you can find us on patreon.com songsatoriumus. We have a ton of bonus audio content at every level, so consider supporting us if you are able. The Tavinas and Back season was co-hosted by David Nadine Anderson and myself, Efren Jr. And the whole kit and caboodle was produced by me via my production company, The Sideway Society. You can follow our sister shows, Never Shut Up, hosted by Rose Cress, as well as Tour All Night, both on all platforms. If you're like my across-the-hall neighbor and want to keep tabs on me at all times, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at Songs of Tori Amos. You can leave us a voicemail at 323-296-9955. You can email us at songsoftoriamus at gmail.com, and you can sign up for our newsletter, which you absolutely should do, at www.songsoftoriamus.com. This season would not have been possible without our team. Our librarian and researcher, Shay Stymack, our voice from the past, Shaggy Jason, our graphic designer, Jack Foster, our resident real-life doctor, Paul Roy Taylor, our resident witch, Amy Kay, of course, our sound man, Oliver Donut, and our resident shit starter, the Y2K bug, performed gloriously by... We'd like to thank all the guests that have shared their time and insights with us this season, including Danny Onchondo, Joseph Jagger, David Raymore, Chris O'Gorman, Theta Hamill, John Ausler, Eric Efergen, Barkley Squared, Matthew Taylor Thomas, Robert Janeway, Nathan Chastain, Robin Hewitt, Shane DeChristina, James Farron, Melissa Kill, Reggie Doherty, Ryan Crawford, Gene Fossey, Cecily Landfield, Mace Krushka, Mika Kusisto, Alicia Fields, Tanya Rigotti, Michael Carley, Danica Lamb, Aaron Marie Rutledge, Stephen Sisk Provencio, and a special thanks to Light the Fuse Podcast for allowing us to play excerpts from their interview with Mitchell Lieb. We'll see you soon for Strange Little Girls. Dr. John Ephraimson and his wife Nadine Davidson find themselves at the end of their journey. We've done it. We finally traversed Venus to secure the last of the fuel that we needed to power our spaceship. The last bit was difficult to find because it was scattered at the bottom of 1,000 oceans. Mmm, a thousand. That's what I said. One thousand. To be frank, that took longer than expected. Oh, Nadine, it wouldn't have taken so long if you hadn't auditioned and been cast in the movie The Lawnmower Woman. 
which, to be fair, played to sold-out houses galaxy-wide as well as a stunning show at Red Rocks and a welcome return to Albuquerque after 20 years. <laughs> You're right. Or if we just put out a B-Sides compilation the way that we'd intended, but I was getting so bored. Bored? With all that time you spent working on the carnival? I'm surprised to hear that. Well, we're all fueled up. Let me just start her up, I guess. Shall we? Yes, John. It's time to embark on our most epic adventure yet, and this time, I say we walk. Nuh-uh. Not quite, Nadine. We must return to the Atlantic one more time. Oh, God, but I don't want to give anything more of myself. You know what? I had a dream. You don't have to. Oh? Look to the contract. I, I guess it's good that we get back home. We did leave our 13 daughters alone in the house with an unlocked wig cabinet. Oh, 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 the girls. I can't wait to see what adventures they've gotten up to. Well, I guess it's time we say goodbye to space. Bye, space. My space? No. Bye, space. No longer orbiting, I guess. Shut the door. Shut the door. Stop dubbing my landscape. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamis.com.